Hello everyone, this is Shrab Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today is our 8th episode in our Heroes Without Capes Voices from Within the Classroom podcast series. Over the past 6 or 7 episodes, we're getting to have a conversation with our nation's educators to understand their world views, an understanding of their views on education, their pet peeves, things they love, things that they don't necessarily love. I'm delighted to announce that we have the wonderful, wonderful Kate Field joining us today. Kate is a special educational needs coordinator, passionate about well-being and mental health. Um, just a fantastic guest, and uh, I think myself and Kate uh, uh, are going to have a fantastic conversation. So, hello, Kate, and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Really lovely to be here. Thank you. I think I we struck up a conversation initially. I think it was something to do with politics, and eventually, just uh, we met on Zoom and. Um, I just was fascinated with your story and I thought, you know what, this is someone we need to have on our, on our platform and on our, on our podcast and hold a conversation. But uh, Kate, you're a Senko, aren't you, okay? I am. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your trajectory to where you are now, because being a Senko, is a, it requires a level of patience and skill that I probably don't think I've got, um, to be very honest. <laughs> but, no, it'd be, it'd be lovely to understand like, how you got to where you are right now. Well, it's a very long, convoluting pathway. Mm. Um, I've been in education since 2006. Um, Previously, I was working in the NHS and prior to that within social services. So I've kind of had a service background. Um, And so my pathway into teaching wasn't particularly conventional, but, you know, I, I think actually quite a few people have different paths um, into teaching so I was a little bit older I was in sort of in my late 30s when I qualified as a teacher and I think that kind of gave me um, a bit more strength I certainly couldn't have done it in my 20s and um, that really wouldn't have worked at all that would have been, I'd have been rubbish um, started off as an art teacher I did a degree in um, art and design and and then I followed that up with a, a few years later with a degree in history and social science. And that's what then took me into mm. um, working with social workers in, in the mental health service. Um, so I've always been interested in people whose lives are more vulnerable than others, mm. and especially within mental health and I think now in sort of 2020, it's everyone's talking about it, which is fantastic. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, people didn't talk about it. Mm. And there was a lot of stigma. And so that kind of pathway into thinking about people, people's mental health needs and special educational needs probably stemmed from there. But it certainly wasn't my intention to uh, be anything other than a frontline class teacher. Mm-hmm. And which I did for probably 12 years. I didn't, I kind of resisted management. Yep. Totally. Yep. Many of us <laughs> do, yeah, various reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. I just, yeah. I, I'd been in, I'd done management in the NHS. I was, you know, I was in senior management um, at Greenwich Primary Care Trust, um, and which I loved, absolutely mm-hmm. loved. But then I thought, you know what? I've got this idea. I want to be a teacher, and that's what I'm going to do. So, I kind of got thrown straight in at the deep end because at that point in 2006, 2007, the government had that that kind of new idea of different pathways into teaching. Mm. So I didn't go, I I didn't go and do a PGCE at university. I did, did it in the classroom. 
Okay, it's like an initial teacher training sort of school centred sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah. and which for me was brilliant actually, Mm -hmm. because it meant I could do a bit of studying and then straight away I could put into practice what Mm -hmm. I'd just been reading about the night before. And then I could make some value judgment on that. One thing, one thing for our listeners in particular to realize that the PGC, although it's this, seems this golden way, the, the only way into teaching, there's multiple avenues people find and each of them Absolutely. deserve respect and credit, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it, it suited me really well. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was an art teacher and I think teaching art and design, you tend to attract, this is in secondary, Mm. Um, quite often attracts students who perhaps are a little bit more vulnerable and who are a bit more needy in some ways and also those students who perhaps think they're different and don't fit into the norms of society so I was in a in a city in a city school um very um multicultural, multiracial, I think 30, 35 different languages wow. spoken in the wow. school. And so it was, it was really diverse. And in that sense, it was exciting. And I really enjoyed that. I was born in London. Um, so I was kind of used to, I'm sort of used to being in that, that kind of society, which I, I really love. And I think just being frontline teacher, teaching art and design, getting students to be creative, finding their own creativity suited me for, for a long time. And then I kind of then thought, actually, I want to teach A-level. Our school just was up to year 11. So I went for a job as head of art and design at a college, FE college, and got it. And uh, so I did that for four years and that, that was amazing. So I was teaching um, A-level, art and design, fine art textiles, ran a, a team and sort of went into a bit of management there. <laughs> that was it, which was, I loved it. I loved it right up until the last year. And then just so many things were, were going wrong. Um, we didn't have the support. There was a lot of bullying going on with the staff, not students, staff mm-hmm. bullying, which um, was really distressing and very upsetting. We had tons of funding cut and I just thought, you know what, I'm just fed up. I'm fed up with this. Um, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. Um, I, I was just so mentally drained and I thought, you know, I'm qualified in other stuff. I'll, I'll go and do something else. Mm. So um, I handed in my notice in the May, had no idea what I was going to do in September. <laughs> But I thought, I don't know, something, something will happen. I've done that before as well. Just rock up and say, oh, I'm leaving. And then something just turns up. If it doesn't, we're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, yeah. something will happen. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to go out on an absolute height. I worked my socks off in that last term of being in the school, in the college. And I worked really hard for the students and for my staff. And we put on the most amazing end of year show. Uh, I was so proud of my students. They got the best grades that I've ever had as a teacher for A-level and diploma. So many of them went on to do art and design at university. And it was, it was fantastic. Went out on an absolute high. And that 
that was that was fantastic but it did it did mean <laughs> that in in september i just thought hmm, right what am i going to do now september you're sat there thinking you know what i've got bills to pay as well like, yeah, i know i thought oh this maybe have been a little bit rash um so i thought do you know what i'll sign on with an agency and do some supply i thought you know that 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 would be fine so met up with a fantastic agency really got on well with the um the managing director there she really kind of got me and she said you know why are you quitting teaching you know you i can hear it in your voice you know, you are passionate about teaching how about we just just take a, a step back and we'll just put you into various different schools and you just see just to plod along just so there's no pressure so I said, yeah, great, fine, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it, was that, it was that kind of thing. So obviously, right at the beginning of September, there's not many schools that actually want teachers in that first. Yeah, they're fully stocked on the NQTs, everyone's quite keen, no, no Absolutely, and no one's gone off sick or anything like that. So she phoned me and she said, you know, how do you fancy doing a bit of TA work um, in a special needs school? So I said, yeah, it's fine. And so we've got, this was in, in Surrey. And in Surrey, there are four big um, special needs schools. They're, they're amazing. And so I ended up being a TA for two weeks in the special needs school. Mm. And oh my gosh, it was amazing. <laughs> I just, there was obviously no pressure because yeah, I was a TA, so it was great. Um, it was really good one-to-one with students and then after about two weeks the uh, one of the head teachers at one of the schools said uh, she said you, you are I know you're a qualified teacher <laughs> do, you, do you want to come and work in the school um, as a teacher so for the next two years I worked as a special in the special needs school in I worked in all four of them actually um, and that was that saved me you know, it kind of brought me back to why I wanted to be a teacher in the first place. And refinding your purpose, uh, I think, is often needed, isn't it? Refinding the reason why you chose to be there to even yeah. start teaching in the first first place. So I think we all yeah. need a spiritual journey, don't we, here and there? And oh yeah. A reminder that you know yeah. what we are doing is worthy and we are exceptional, and you know we can do it. That and, and previous experiences don't define us. No, ab- absolutely, and it, it was so. It was a, a real humbling experience in lots of lots of ways i met some amazing people some amazing students some amazing parents foster parents and i thought actually i i want to pursue this a little bit more so i did a couple of courses and i like studying anyway so that that was that was really good and then round about this time um my husband Jonathan and I decided that we were actually going to leave leave Surrey and move to live by the sea in Dorset. Okay. Our children had grown up and um, we thought, you know what, uh, our youngest is just about to finish university. There's, they're all independent. Let's uh, let's move. So we'd been thinking about it for ages. So we decided, yeah, that's what we'd do. So. The last year I was in Surrey, I worked for um, a bit of Surrey County Council called Access to Education, which was relatively new at that time. And 
basically I taught students who had, well, there were two strands. One, they're basically all students who are out of mainstream school for various different reasons. So there was a group of a significant number of students who'd all been excluded from the PRUs. So from the pupil referral unit. So they'd all been excluded yeah, from those. Yay. <laughs> and so I worked with them. Um, school refuses and for a whole load of reasons mm -hmm. and then um, a smaller number of students who were medically um, very very vulnerable and we worked quite closely with um, Great Ormond Street Hospital and Royal Brompton and so kids who were seriously ill and so they can't go into mainstream school so I was working with those working with those students and that was completely outside of a school environment so we were working in in their homes so I really got to know families and all the sort of extended families I got to know uh, the other professionals that were working with them medical people social workers police and um, yeah all, all sorts of other agencies and so that that was a really good grounding really uh, in the last year of being in Surrey and then I moved down to Dorset two years ago. It's incredible how your journey's gone from you know, innocuously, innocently stepping into teaching and then yeah. <laughs> um, having, having a good experience, also having a difficult experience, walking away, reflecting on it and then finding a new niche for yourself. So reinventing yourself, which yeah. I think is incredible. I think a lot of NQTs and teachers, including myself as well, very much fix on this idea. We're going to be in the classroom forever. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. something might just click in a different field. You know, I've got a friend who yeah. works in supervision. He started the PGC with me five years ago. He said to me, Shreb, I absolutely love AP. It's incredible. I get to yeah. be creative. I can do that. We can do loads of different things. We go on trips, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's really important to branch out and actually go and have those experiences before we, you know, cut them off completely and turn, turn away from them. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think we have to realize that as we grow older and our experience influences, influences our, our thoughts mm. and we change. Mm. And, and I think that, being open to that change and being open to actually that's not what I think anymore mm. that that is what I thought 10-15 years ago but that's actually not what I think now and I think that's a good thing mm. yeah. no, I totally agree I totally agree there's not a one-size-fits-all model of where you no, should definitely be not. No. for five years absolutely yeah I think uh, we do set like timelines in education don't we, where we should be in the next couple of years but oh gosh yeah well, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so so I'm now in the in the situation where I am assistant vice principal and Senko I'm in a school in Dorset in a in a town in Dorset so although it doesn't have any, it doesn't have the diversity uh, that and you know cultural diversity that um, when I was working in Surrey in London but it has a lot of poverty and a lot of need and a lot of students with SEN and there's it's a, it's a different type of environment definitely because it's much more rural we're by the sea and that and it's a different type of um vibe and one of the one of the most difficult things is um aspiration really for the for these kids they're kind of they don't really go further than about 20 miles <laughs> like, I work in similar environments and there's no need for them to go outside those two, two miles it, and it's the smallest really, things really like trips you know, they, 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 they're, 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 they're life-changing for these kids oh absolutely and and it's really interesting because 
because we are right by the sea and so you know talking a moment ago about AP we we do quite a lot of alternative provision within the school based on this around the sea so tons and tons of water sports and water-based and sea-based activities and rural activities so you know, we've, we've got access to a farm and the horses and you know for me as a as a Londoner <laughs> it's just like wow this is so exciting <laughs> like, I'm gonna go and play with the horses you know I don't know nothing about horses I, you know I've never been on a horse <laughs> and and there's sheep and cows and and then there's the whole water stuff and sailing and scuba diving and fishing and all sorts of stuff and so for me I get very excited about that and my excitement and enthusiasm definitely rubs off on the on the kids who have lived by the sea all their lives because they're like really <laughs> yeah it's really exciting <laughs> i think one thing that's really important to realize no matter where wherever you work if you work in inner city i work in inner city i also work in rural areas there's opportunities locally that we've got to make the most of, you know, mm. areas, like you say, you know, water sports and things like that. You won't probably yeah. get London, but the London kids get other alternative opportunities. I go to a football stadium. So Absolutely. it's about finding that balance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I think that this whole 2020 with lockdown and COVID-19 has made us be more creative in trying to find different activities that kids can do safely and just to keep trying to to broaden broaden their horizons um, also to stimulate their minds as well yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's been a even things like virtual teaching you know it's, it's opened up a complete new new conversation yeah. about our our very unhappy marriage with technology and teaching you know we're not very well married are we it's, it's pending divorce let's just say you know the, the two need to join in some sort of you know holy matrimony i don't know why i keep using uh, marriage uh, i was gonna say because you've been married I don't know why I keep in, but yeah um, yeah the similes and adjectives and whatnot yeah that's uh but yeah either way there needs to be some sort of connect there because at the minute you know we've got a real chasm between what goes on at home what goes on at school and bridging that is what's really important and things like ap you know and not sticking to high stakes testing and things like that yes. you know which yeah. are sort of the holy grail in teaching for some yeah. children it isn't the way forward you know and this when they scrap coursework you know you know i can imagine a lot of children a lot of teachers as well uh, their, their, their hearts were sank to the pit their stomach thinking that you now we've lost an opportunity to assess our children in a different way and the inclusivity has gone isn't it as well yes i i was really hoping and i still hope um that this whole covid thing will mean that we will have an education revolution mm. um, we need one and other you know other people that you've um, been chatting to on your podcast you have, have said similar things that you know, the creativity has gone out of teaching we there not totally but it's just more difficult if we are being so structured in the way we are supposed to deliver and the outcomes if the outcomes are so narrow where does that leave us um in the 21st century you know it's just like really how's that going to work then no you're absolutely right and there's very much a um projection and the idea that if you don't teach this this way and you don't you know occupy yeah. the, and tick these boxes or meet these objectives it's very much the cookie cutter approach we have the same um subject yeah. view of what makes a good teacher it shouldn't be the case and it's it and it has straight jacketed creativity it's reduced autonomy it's um 
you know, there's the micromanagement as well of teachers, which is you know, OTT at the best. You know, I've been micromanaged to the point of leaving a school. It's, oh, yeah. Yeah. it's got to be methods and alternative ways to, to measure success in education. It can't come down to book looks or, 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 you know, learning walks. It needs to be something else. There needs to be something more holistic and a bit more credible that we can uh, judge a teacher's um, impact on rather than just exam results and, and ticking boxes. I know, I know. So I'm really lucky where I am now, a very, very supportive um, principal who was a Senko. So he has, okay, he so knows. Okay, so knowledge, yeah. that's, that's really good. Yes. That's really good, yeah. And, and, yeah, and he is, he's extremely supportive in my vision for inclusion, because that inclusion is my absolute passion. And this kind of links again to these um, government outcomes, mm. the expected outcomes for our students on how, very narrow they are and how limiting they are and it kind of ties in with this whole idea of you know what exactly is school for Mm. that whole kind of big philosophical question it was the point (laughs) and and to really kind of drill down on okay so we are we are in this environment with all of these children and these young people what how are we serving them for the 21st century mm. how is how what are we doing there and and how is that going to work and if we are completely restricted which i believe we are by these restraints these government restraints of outcomes and what makes a good school and mm. uh, we're, we're just tied and i end up sort of being really quite rebellious about this and then i go around in a big circle and think mm. well i've got to kind of play the system somehow we've got to try and get get through this uh it's, it's just so difficult and it doesn't have to be i think that's no, the thing that frustrates me it really doesn't have to be that difficult you know no, why are we saying it's sort of progress eight why do mm. students have to have eight gcse's mm. in order to for us as a school to be able to tick that box to say yeah we've got eight they got eight mm. um gcse's it's just rubbish mm. how about some students getting four and getting four really good ones and enjoying those four and then the rest of that of their time in the school they're actually doing enrichment activities to help them in life you're right you're absolutely right it's um i think the one thing i really find really frustrating is i teach year seven when they rock up in the first days of year seven the babies i know (laughs) and you know what you can see they are so innocent and so naive they're so doe-eyed and they need an opportunity like a week or two where they just do skills how to take notes, how to organize a pencil case, how to, you know, the small things, you know, I remember when I was growing up, I was very fortunate where my grandfather raised me and you know, we learned how to iron our uniform and things like that very, very early age, age, age 10, 11. A lot of these children don't have those very basic skills at home and those very basic skills, even communicating. Now I can imagine, you know, most of the time spent on phones or iPads, tablets, etc. even having face-to-face conversations and my year 11s regularly, regularly say to my year 10s say to me regularly. So how come we don't do things on taxes or mortgages? And my argument yep. is it, it needs to be embedded in slowly but surely, but the detachment yeah. from the workplace and real life from school, it, it's getting, getting broader, isn't it? It's getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we, we, it's really funny when you talk about year sevens because we had we would normally do a year six to year seven transition over the summer term and they'd because we we have about eight primary schools maybe even more than that come into our school from the rural areas and then then they will they will come in 
and there'll be loads of activities and they'd get to know the school because the school is massive compared to their little tiny um, village primary schools um but we haven't been able to do that so we created a film so that was fun <laughs> <laughs> was there any singing and dancing in there Oh my god! Honestly, Joe, it was so it was so funny. There's me and my fantastic hub manager, okay, um, sitting on a sofa. So we tried to kind of make it as kind of friendly, and and we and we just had a bit of a chat about what what it is that we do for our SEN kids. Um, it's a like five minute film, and it took us about three quarters of an hour to film because. <laughs> We kept getting the giggles imagine, I, imagine, yeah. and I said a rude word in the middle of something and you know it was just like hilarious <laughs> but, but it meant that we we missed out well we didn't miss out the year six students missed out on that experience so we had we had them some of them come in there about 50 of them come in on our first inset day in September for the afternoon, just for a couple of hours, where we went through how to read their timetable, um, how the times of the day work, what door they come in, you know, oh, where the loo is, yeah. you know, where the canteen is. And because we were in year bubbles, that, that actually has made life a little bit easier. Um, but oh, that. And they still don't get it. Of course they don't. Oh, and oh, and, that, and yeah, it takes takes ages, and that adds to stress, doesn't it? So you're absolutely right. They just need to they need to kind of go from a primary school where they're in one room with one teacher all day, all day, yeah. <laughs> to this. They've got five different lessons. They've got this massive building, loads and loads of different teachers, loads of different lessons, and it's always like whoa. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Kate. And one thing I find particularly interesting is when I when I start at school or you know, it's like from there on supply or whatever, I always ask about who the, you know, transition manager is and yes. their, their position and their role. Are they a full time teacher? Do they focus yeah. on that role? And what are they doing to build relationships and, and rapports with the local schools? What are they doing with the local authority? So How do they know they haven't got vulnerable children in the school or children yeah. that have, you know, um, you know, special educational needs, etc. or EAL? It's about developing that rapport nice and early with those children and with those parents. So when yeah. they do step up into year seven, they feel included in the school community. It's a, it's a holistic thing and, and bringing Definitely. people all together. So I think that, that that transition period is really, really important. And becoming a transition manager, of course, it comes with its pressures as well. But having an understanding of your local context, you know, and getting to know the students, that's so important. It was really good. And one of the things that's been quite interesting was in previous years, that cut, kind of whole transition that happened in the summer term where we would go, go and visit the um, primary schools. Of course, we couldn't do that. So we did Zoom stuff. And actually, some of that worked really, really well. And we also then connected up with parents and the, and the students on Zoom calls. And that went really well. Because it was just like, yeah, you can like wave to people and say, you know, yeah. here I am. Yeah, I'm not that scary. Actually, I'm not scary in the, at all. <laughs> and this is what the school looks like. And just having that kind of five, ten minutes on a Zoom call, um, we had a lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback from parents saying, actually, you know, that was just so nice. Yeah. You know, my, my son could, could see you, could hear you. And so that when 
he, he arrived in September he said oh yeah that's Mrs Field that's that's good yeah I, I saw her on the on the zoom call so I think we'll we'll do that again whether we're in Covid or not I think that we will continue no, definitely that. it's opened up opportunities hasn't it I think one, yeah, thing, one thing Kate that I think I find quite not what we are kind of worrying at times is there's a lot of focus on and it again links back to outcomes year 10 11 and 6 form and a lot of schools get very sidetracked I worked in a school a little while ago and they were just focused on 11s and 6 form 11 and year 13 so every other year group was basically yeah. allowed to do what they wanted yeah. so when they these year nine stepped up into year 10 they had just had a year of complete messing about and they wasn't great and the year seven wasn't great how do you think schools could kind of like create a consistent approach across all year groups that's a very broad question by the way well i think it comes down to what is the point of school because if if we get that bit right then that goes across the years if we are totally outcome focused and i i think that and, and those outcomes are government led, yep. then that is going to create a very, very narrow curriculum. Mm. And, and we are going to have the effect where, yeah, yeah, eights and nines are kind of doing what they like. Yeah. <laughs> they come into year 10 and whoa, now we're, we're no, it's just rubbish, it doesn't work yeah. at all. Absolutely. I think they call them the lost years. I think the lost years, yeah, absolutely. Whereas I, I think I actually really like year nines because I feel that as as young people sort of age 13 14 they're really beginning to be able to articulate their own thoughts and their own ideas they're getting their opinions they're becoming a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more mature and you can have some really really interesting discussions with them they can also be right pains can't they mm. oh my god mm. and loud absolutely absolutely oh, year nines like they're seriously loud and that's just like those year seven eight and nine years if if they are lost yeah. and they can be lost as well if they are lost to regain and recover that Oh, it's really difficult yeah and and we're in a situation in our school where we had a, a really bad Ofsted um last year 20, 2019 and so the whole of the leadership team is new so i was brought in new this is new senko um new principal new vice principals and so it's the whole team is really new and exactly as you've just said to me we're like picking up on all of the stuff that's happened over the last few years oh, where yeah. kids have been failed really mm. and you just think oh my gosh mm. and when you're trying to work with year 11s and year 11 parents who feel really let down yep. um trying to pick up those pieces is yeah that's hard Really hard. Absolutely. I think sometimes, you know, when year groups go through and, and uh, schools and often sit down and say, Do you know what? That was a bad year group, fair enough, put hands up and say fair enough. When it happens repeatedly, yeah, it yeah. carries on. And the children don't see the purpose of education in seven, eight, and nine. They don't see the purpose in year ten and eleven. I've yeah. picked up very recently a year ten class. They started their GCSE in year nine. They didn't have the consistency with teaching. Um, it made it it makes it really difficult for me now. To provide them with that consistency because I've had such a bad experience previously, and they're thinking, "Yeah, our GCSEs are year in a year away. We can just misbehave. It doesn't really matter." But without the realization of the bigger picture, their purpose in school and what they and where they're going and how we can get them there. Yeah, 
yeah absolutely well consistency of um teaching i think is just it's is really so important yeah we've we've got we've got a real problem in some subjects where they're just the the teaching staff turnover is just like massive and you think well what is going on there what what is happening yeah. And Kate, people have said to me very recently, oh, Shwab, you know, there must be loads of surplus teachers. I'm like, we've had a retention crisis for 10 years. We've had a recruitment <laughs> crisis for 10 years. There's not a, you know, this is a myth. You know, where are you getting this information from? It's definitely education. Really, it, this is a real problem in Dorset. Yeah. And, and, and I think in the, in the rural areas, we, we are not able to recruit easily. Yeah. It's, it's quite difficult. You know, we can offer... Um, you know, beautiful landscape and the sea and, you know, change your way of life, come out of the inner cities and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, people are in different phases of their lives and, yeah, they're, they're just not, not around. We've, Definitely. We just and, and initiatives like Teach First, you know, they tend to focus on inner city areas anyway. They so do, absolutely. They do. And quite rightly, I, yeah. you know, I, I get that. I, I totally get that. But I do feel that sometimes the rural parts of rural Britain um, are, are neglected um, and I'd never really thought of that before because I've lived in cities all my life mm. and and you know holidays in in the countryside type of thing but I've never lived in the countryside before different different issues but hasn't um, Covid really experienced a divide between certain cities and certain regions and up north and south massively as well I live here in Cambridgeshire and I'm very fortunate with our city we are in tier two I think we're in tier yeah. two I'm not sure we probably are in tier oh, two I know. Yeah, probably, <laughs> I'm not going to travel anywhere but I might, go, I might go get my eyesight tested at Barnard Castle later in the year <laughs> Okay. Um, anyone listening, if you want to join me, you know, we'll leave on that. Yeah, brilliant. Let's all go. Let's all go. Yeah, let's all go together. Yeah, I might see Dominic up there. But, um, yeah. Either way, no, I was uh, I was thinking about it not too long ago. So I used to work in a rural area, and we had unbelievable amount of supply teachers coming in from the city. So they thought it'd be easier for them to work in rural areas. Now that I'm in a in a city, I work in the city school. Most of our staff are predominantly young trainees. Yes. But those regions did not attract young trainees. It wasn't as attractive. And like you say, you know, when I was working in rural areas, you know, it's uh, you can offer picturesque scenery and, and farmland and, you know, a few horses here and there. But the inner city is where the funding tends to be drawn into. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is it's, in, it's very, very interesting. And quite southern centric as well, I think, at times, particularly around our, our, our nation's capital. Yes, yeah, south southeast. Mm. I, I think in particular, you know, it's, well, it's just that you no, know, it's London, isn't it? It's around mm. London because yeah, you know, there's parts of Kent that you know have real serious deprivation. Place like and, and places like that, yeah. That's you know, um, really really hard. Mm. And then you know, down sort of nearer to us in sort of Devon and Cornwall, mm. yeah, finding things very very difficult. Yeah. I think, and again, kind of get these kids to sort of aspire that's not to say that they shouldn't do what they want to do and if they want to if they want to carry on in the farm that their parents own or their parents work on and and they want to be involved in in that the countryside that that's absolutely fine not you know that's that's absolutely fine but it's about opening their eyes that they don't have to do that mm. they can go and do something else. And it's kind of, you're just providing more options, aren't you, really? Which I think what education is really I, all about. I say this to, to so many students. I was saying it to a group of girls this week. 
the, the thing is, you're they're year 11 girls. So we're doing mocks, year 11 mocks at the moment. So lots of stress, because we're trying to do these mocks properly, mm. just in case we have to use these mocks as they're... Probably will, you know, I think. I think they'll be another... real thing. So yeah. they, they know that, then, you know, they, they know that. So a lot of anxiety going on. But I was saying to them, if you've got your qualifications, you have got freedom. Mm. And it, it means that you don't then, it's not, it's, it's not as difficult for you to go on to do what you want to do. If you haven't got your qualifications, you're just limited to what you can do. And we were, we were having a really interesting conversation um, with them about different pathways and trying to get them to understand that what they decide at 16 <laughs> doesn't necessarily define them <laughs> yeah, definitely right. and i think kate you're right it kind of links back to the full circle idea of timelines <laughs> expected to be in sixth form by 18 finish school at 18 go to university finish at 21 be married yeah. have kids you know career by yeah. 25 30 yeah. these, 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 these timelines are so um outdated and so dangerous for some of our kids who can't access them no absolutely because then they feel that oh there's no point because yeah. i'm never going to be able to do that so there's no point in me even trying and that i just think is heartbreaking just definitely, absolutely definitely. heartbreaking and it very limits the aspiration it mashes massively pushes the aspirations down if they've got aspirations outside of education like they want to be a footballer or they want to do something you know a completely different you know then become an artist and or whatnot or a musician it's almost like their success is defined by someone else's criteria rather than yeah. their own. And that's what yeah. I think you're looking to do in the, in the work that you do, including myself when I'm, when I'm working in my schools. Success is a very um, subjective thing. It's not an objective thing, I think. Oh, absolutely. And it is about that, how you define success. Mm. And, you know, the kids just ask you questions all the time don't you obviously I don't have a Dorset accent mm -hmm. and a lot of so students know straight away that I am not from Dorset yeah. and so they'll say you know where are you from ma'am and and I was say, well yeah, I'm from London and oh, like all right and so we'll talk about that and I said yeah I, I, I had a dream that I wanted to to live in Dorset by the sea and they're like wow <laughs> like, why would you want to do that <laughs> and i said but we all have different different dreams and um you know and we can we can have those dreams it's Absolutely. we're allowed Absolutely. to we can do that. that's the thing we, we're allowed to have that's that's the most that's the most perfect way of putting it. we are allowed to have those dreams absolutely and no one's there to tell us that our dreams are not good enough or un no, unattainable you know, aspiring absolutely. to achieve them, no matter what I think you're right. And the way we shoehorn children into like, and pigeonhole children into boxes and say, well, this, this is what target you're going to get. And this is what you're going to get. You know, yeah. I've taught intervention classes where I've been told only teach up to the grade eight, uh, grade five. That's the only thing you teach up to. You don't teach anything extend, extended. And you've got children sat in there scratching their head, bored, thinking, you know, can't, like, I want to get an eight or a nine. Why are you stopping me? Why are you preventing me? And then yeah. it's that heartbreaking dialogue where you have to say, this is your target grade. This is what we're looking to get. Nothing beyond that. And it's very frustrating. It is very frustrating. But very. Again, it's very much leadership onwards, isn't it? You know, how aspirations are set and how they're created, yeah. you know, who can achieve, you know, and, yeah. and the purpose of education according to policymakers and teachers as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also who is successful, you know, there are certain types of personalities, you know, dare I say, people who are complicit, people who will toe the line, 
people are yes men or yes women or yes people who will do exactly what score required of them to succeed and there's the rebellious people people who put their neck on the line and, and question things who are condemned and really we should be flipping that around saying that Definitely. let's consider their perspective let's look at where they're coming yeah. from rather than like the whole notion of you know being socially woke which is becoming more and more prominent or calling someone a snowflake um yeah. built upon this idea of saying your battle's not worthy and that mm-hmm. it's not credible uh, if anything we should be promoting everyone's battles and trying to support everyone through their battles absolutely and 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 be curious mm. just to be about to be curious about somebody else's aspiration and it, our lives are all so different but they are all connected and and it's that kind of curiosity you think yeah that's mm. Okay, that's an interesting point of view. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that has, has upset me a lot over the last couple of years um, politically is the polarisation of, of society and that if someone doesn't agree with your point of view, they're automatically your enemy. Mm-hmm. Why, why have we suddenly become like this why can't we have friends who just have different opinions to us and that's okay it's horrible absolutely and, talk, and approach them in a kind way rather than you know, <laughs> ram, ram the opinion down their throat to the point where they're vomiting the rubbish yeah. you just told them I it, know. It's, I just, it's disappeared I, uh, it makes me really sad mm. makes me really really sad and i don't know why we why this has happened it i just find it perplexing and one of the things that I have to do at school is I do a lot of mediation um, particularly with girls at the moment so young girls mm. who are being really horrible to each other like really really horrible to each other and we start to unpick okay what is going on here why why did you say that to her mm. or why did you do that or why did you text that mm. why did you write that on social media let's just try and get to the bottom what what was your purpose mm. of doing that? And let's think about the impact and the consequences of, of those actions. And it's quite extraordinary. It's, it's almost like they're doing things unthinkingly. Mm. Just, and, and I think it's at the part of this mass thing. You know, you either for Brexit or you're not. Yeah, and, and, and you, can't join a, you can't be friends with somebody who thinks in a different way to you, you know, because mm. that's just not going to work. And and it's I just I don't know I don't like it. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I think um, I, I, even the whole Brexit situation is where you know I think just the idea that we've become divided over something. That, well, families have been torn apart. Oh, over it, you know, best friends don't talk to each other. Uh, yeah. People have you know stopped. You know, completely cut, cut off all communication with someone who thinks alternatively to them. Ultimately, yeah. you know. Um, the very, the very heart of all Brexit conversation is immigration. Yes. And, you know, yeah. unless that's the elephant in the room, the fact that yeah. no, one, just no one wants to mention that is quite scary as well. So it is, it is really scary. Pro or against it or controlled immigration or no immigration at all, yes. whichever, whichever one we're looking for. Um, I think, you know, from my own perspective, we've been enriched by diversity in many ways. Really? Maybe there perhaps does need to be more control on certain things, you know, like illicit drugs and weapons that mm-hmm. come into the country. Um, but do I hate people if they voted Brexit? No, because when no. Brexit first started, 
When it first started, I thought it was a breakfast cereal. I genuinely <laughs> thought it was a cereal. Like you just go to the supermarket, Frosties, um, <laughs> fruit and fiber, Brexit, and you just, uh, and it'd be like little pound coins, you know? Brilliant. Yeah, with Nigel Farage standing there spouting his nonsense. Uh, yeah, yeah, something <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But there is this division, and you get it in teaching as well. This whole idea of traditional versus progressive. I'm not being yeah. funny. If your interests are with the children, I'm on your side. That's how I've always looked at it. If you're interested in progress, then I will take your side. I don't yeah. understand this rationale of progressive education and you know, traditionalist. What is traditional? Use a chalkboard. What is progressive? Oh, we use an overhead projector. I don't understand. Like, ultimately, you know, your goal must be to get this child to succeed yeah. or yeah. provide them with the best learning environment yeah. possible. Possibly have, absolutely. And, and to be so child-focused, mm. you know, that... For me, my, my teaching style is totally mm. student-focused. Mm. It should be driven Nothing on the context. Matters. Absolutely. The, your, your context is your king. It's your, it's your queen. It's the key, the key to everything. I remember I've sat in lessons and you know, pseudo-observed people during interviews and you know, they've, um, they've not pitched lesson at the lesson at the class. They've pitched it you know, at, the, at the objectives or the learning criteria. Really, right. you don't know the children. Yeah. You don't know the children. Yeah. You know the and weaknesses and... And that, that comes, I know they talk about relationships being the most important thing. Context and relationships are what make a classroom so special. If you don't Absolutely. know your goal, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely, you get nowhere. If, if, you, if you haven't got a good relationship with a student, they're going to just put up the barriers straight away for mm. whatever reason. And it doesn't actually matter what the reason is in that first instance. Mm. You've got the only way that you can break down the, the, those barriers that they put up is by building trust and the only way you can build trust is by building relationships. And it, it's not something that happens overnight. It's, it takes time. But it doesn't actually take that much time. No, I agree. And yeah, it really doesn't. But you do have to put in the effort. And that means that you have to forget that time yesterday when they swore at you. And you have to forget that. And then you, and you start again. And you smile. And you say hello. And you ask them how they are and then you, you remember a tiny little bit about something that they really like mm. and then you talk about that and then you let them go and then the next day you say hello <laughs> you it up, and you mm. smile and you say remember you can come in and have a chat with me whenever you want I don't want to talk what do I want to talk to you for mm. well I just thought you know you might want to mm. the week next week they're rude to you again but the following week suddenly they're there they turn yeah. up at your door Definitely. Um, I think one thing that's really important, Kate, I have always said this, no class is unteachable. I don't believe that. Yeah, I believe there's a, a pedagogical skill or a personality that can help foster and support yeah. those children. And I think a lot of it comes through consistency. Like I've taught, I mean, my first year of teaching during my NQT, I had a class of predominantly boys, of 34 of them. We used to have five TAs in there and three members of senior leadership. It was... You know, wow. it was one of them classes, you know, it was one of those high. Basically, I just said to my mentor, she's like, uh, Shreve, are you sure you want to take this class? I'm like, and I'm like, do you know what? Let's do it. And within a week, I was like, Gemma, what have you done? She's like, no, you chose to do that. You volunteered. So it took me a term from September till about mid-November, early January to break the ice with them and get yeah. to understand them. And by the end of the year, they would come to lessons early. They were being a bit more courteous towards one another. There was less arguing, infighting, and even getting ready for exams. You know, they, uh, you could see that it meant more to them because they knew they had the teacher there regularly and the teacher wasn't going anywhere. But that consistency is important. And at a time of our, you know, our retention and recruitment crisis, you know, 
ultimately not dealing with these bigger issues and putting a plaster over them, it really destabilizes us too. And it's yeah. the, the knock on effect it has on those kids is, is very traumatic. Yeah, it is. It's one of the things that you just said there is about you caring. They, they know that you, you care about them and it's not a, just a kind of a, a, a sticky plaster thing. It's a genuine interest in them and that can that consistency and to be consistent i mean it's exhausting it's absolutely <laughs> exhausting yeah, but, but it's so worth it it really yeah. is worth it because it does pay off every single time it will pay off definitely definitely and i think if you get the for a for a teacher in particular if you get their training year and the nqt year right with them they can yeah. they find ways and it works yeah. me I had a very good nqt year. i was very fortunate i was worked in a yeah, environment but i was very well supported i think the years on where i've met into things i've run into things like data-driven you know systems and offstead yeah. that's when my love for teaching wanes away that's when i lose that sort of ability to have that impact because in the back of my mind i'm thinking even it sounds really crazy but in the back of my thinking will this conversation get this child a grade five and it's horrible having that and not being able to yeah. break away from that divide and i think you mentioned well-being when we first started speaking as well yeah. the well-being of a teacher is imperative and nowadays when it's become a hashtag and a populist thing it, it means so many different things to so many different people but giving a teacher time and space to unpack the shit they're going through yeah language yeah. that is the most Absolutely. important thing, i think yeah it is it, it is about having time and that just time to to think mm. just to take a step back and um, i'm certainly finding this very very difficult at the moment by making sure that my staff, my TAs, mm. and my hub manager, I make sure that they do have time away from the students. But that has ultimately meant that I have no time. Mm. And I'm going to have to really think about this and think about how I'm going to do it. Because obviously, my mental health is, is important to my whole team. And at the moment, I'm, I'm fine. I'm tired, but I'm fine. But it's not sustainable. So no, I have to find a, find a way to, to, to deal with this. Um, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we, we're in a culture where to be busy is seen as a good thing, isn't it? It's like, it's I'm busier than you. And <laughs> you think you're busy, big of my day. <laughs> it's the same thing with like on social media when people are making displays. Oh, I've made this display. Have you seen mine? Oh, hers, hers is really good. Oh, they've made one as well. And it's this constant inbuilt tacit competition with one another. I know. What is all that about? Yeah, Can we just stop that? <laughs> I remember I pulled over an NQT once um, and he was like, oh, Shreb, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making these cue cards for my students. I'm like, where, does, where is it empirically driven what you're doing? Oh, it's, it's not. Stop doing stop it. doing it. <laughs> stop right now. Go home. Like, go home. Go and live your life. Go and eat a sandwich. Do something else. It's yeah. unbelievable to think that there is... And it's toxic productivity. I think we enforce oh, it. Yes. Things like, you know, um, I don't know, like, there were, I remember when I started my NQT, uh, I used to race to do my duty first. I would be the first one on the yard. Well, after a couple of weeks, I thought, like, who am I kidding? Like, what <laughs> does it make if I'm first or if I'm last? So eventually I just became, you know, started going at my own time. But it's, yeah. uh, it, is, it is really bizarre. I, I, I saw two NQTs, I'll never forget this. I saw two NQTs. They were competing who could make who could drink the strongest coffee so one had five teaspoons of coffee the other had four and i was sitting there thinking this doesn't prove anything if anything it makes you look like a pillock <laughs> what are you doing 
And I, I didn't know what to say. And, and they were like, oh, you know, this, this is how a real teacher operates. No, they don't. I'm sorry. You're, you've completely misinterpreted what the teaching standards say. You know, um, yeah. Oh, yes. it is dangerous. I don't, and finding that balance between the two, I think Dr. Emma Kell and, um, oh, was it Adrian? Adrian, um, I forgot his last name. They released a book about teacher well-being uh, post-pandemic. Okay. Oh, there's a lot written about it, but actual practice of teacher well-being really does come by providing people time and, and, and giving them opportunities to actually manage their own workload. Yes. Yeah. And making sure that anything that, well, like you've just said, making sure that the work that they are actually doing is going to be of benefit mm. to the students. Mm. That's Absolutely. got to be the absolute ultimate. I learned quite early on. I've always had a, I've, I've got a strong rebellious streak in me. You're a social <laughs> scientist, that's expected, and an artist as well, so it's expected. Absolutely. Um, so, I, and I, I think this came from working for the NHS actually, where I'd be, there'd be demands put on me. You know, I need to do this, this, and this, and I need to do this form and fill out this form and do this. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why? Right, what, what is the point? of this particular exercise and I learned as I got a bit more confident as well I would ask why am I doing this you know in all kind of like you know, very polite and everything you know why what is the purpose of this particular exercise because it's going to take me about two hours or whatever and mm -hmm. um, why am I doing it and if they couldn't give me an answer yeah. I didn't do it yeah, <laughs> I just didn't do it I agree. I, agree. Yeah, I, agree. I just thought, I'm not doing it. And one of the schools that I worked at was absolutely notorious at like changing systems every six months yeah. as to how you, know, how you mark books or how you record things. Mm. And I just had this idea, um, probably read too much dystopian science fiction, that all the stuff that I was collating mm. was actually just going straight into a bin. It was. And, it was. you know, <laughs> no one was looking at it. Yeah. And so I just stopped doing it. Yeah. And one of the guys that I did my NQT with, we ended up being in the same school for, for a number of years and became really good friends. And he was very conscientious. And he would say to me, you know, Kate, you know, how have you got time to do that? I said, I haven't done it. And he said, what do you mean you haven't done it? Mm. I said, well, I haven't done it. Mm. And he said, how long have you not been doing it? So I said, about four months. And he said, and no one's asked you for it. Nope. No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> okay. not I remember one. during our PGC, there was these big folders that were created. And everyone <laughs> saying to me, Shrab, you know, we've got, we made a database. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm, I'm apathetic anyway. So I was thinking, if you don't impact the kids, I'm not doing it. And then one day we were called in, we were told to bring in all these folders, all these wonderful folders. I just put my little folder in put it at the desk and left it there. And everyone's like, they're going to fail you. I'm going, no, they won't. They won't. They won't. Look, they won't look at them. And I came back and I put a piece of paper inside my folder. And if it opened, it opened out fully. And I was only, and I opened it. I just knew I was your first person to touch that folder. And they were like, oh, you took a big risk, didn't you? I go, yeah, that folder's actually got blank paper in. There's nothing in there. Literally, there's nothing in there. If I'd been pulled up and questioned, I would have had the information somewhere. I'm not, not yeah. exactly where, but I've had it somewhere. But this whole notion of evidence trails, you know, uh -huh. um, even like when we do like CPD after school, I sat the most ridiculous CPD once. And this bloke was about behavior management. He was talking about internal motivation. 
And I asked him, I put my hand up and go, well, I need to know two things. How can I stop low-level disruption? And what do I do when a child tells me to fuck off? That's all yeah. I want to know. I'm That's sorry. all he wants to know. Absolutely. He's like, oh, it's all about the internal motivation. And then I was like, you know what, can I just leave? And I just left. I got up and left. And everyone's looking at me like, what is he doing? <laughs> what did you take from that? I learned nothing. I just nothing. walked away. This guy, we don't want theory, we don't, you know, we want practical, pragmatic advice. You know, what do I do? I think this is why I find Twitter in particular, Edu Twitter or whatever they call it. I don't use that word anymore. I've never, I've gone away from it. I find sometimes people on there, not going to mention any names, they're speaking from an abstract point of view of not being in the classroom. Now, I'm not being funny. I'm I'm in those classrooms with those kids, you know, I know the rough ones, I know the tough ones, I know know how it goes, I know how difficult context can be. And including yourself as well, working with some very difficult and vulnerable Mm -hmm. children, not being funny, unless you've been sat in my shoes, and, and, and been in my situation, you're in no position to give me advice, you know, focus on your own life. A bit like politicians yeah. as well, you know, Gavin Williamson, yeah. we talked about disadvantaged children. Kate, you know this, disadvantaged kids. They need equality of opportunity. They need people to listen to them. And you know what? They need equalization of funding. They don't need, you know, downing street briefings and for their names to be mentioned. You know, they don't need that. They need genuine support. And that comes from, you know, stock stuff in our schools properly, you know, making sure there's enough PPE for our staff making yeah. sure toilet paper in the school the amount of schools that i've worked in and there's no toilet paper in the toilets you're wondering do i buy on the way to school i you know, know. oh my gosh yeah i know and, and deprivation it does exist right across the country and i think when educators get pulled into these ridiculous conversations are you trad or are you progressive we're not focusing on the bigger picture where children are starving every night, you know, yeah. or there's child protection concerns or safeguarding issues. Or, yeah, you know, huge safeguarding issues. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We're, we're detracting ourselves from the bigger picture, aren't we? Definitely, definitely. And I, th- I think the whole kind of COVID has really brought out a lot of um, the extreme deprivation as well, because we've, we've, we've done an audit. We did an audit in July of our students and we've got nine, 900 kids in the school and half of them don't have regular access to a device connected to the internet at home. That's half That's the school. Scary. That is really scary. And so that could mean that, I mean, there's a few that have no access at all, but they are, they are a minority. But if you're looking at students being at home, they've got siblings, they've got parents, maybe the parents working at home. So they've got one computer. So dad is using the computer because he's working from home. So he's on the computer. So there are no other devices. So how does that work? And even if there is like a, a, an iPhone or an iPad or something, how's that all working when everyone's trying to do stuff all at the same time and you've got different siblings, you've got different students in different, um, different sort of siblings in different year groups doing different things. It's just not gonna work. Yeah. And we we wonder why they're not accessing online mm. lessons. Mm. <laughs> of course, of course. And then uh, good old Gavin Honey, he left uh, there's ten thousand those laptops, you know, which have gone missing. You know, where where are those laptops? You know, so, Gavin, if you're listening to this, unblock me on Twitter, please. That'd be brilliant. And secondly, you know, uh, where are those laptops? You know, and you think to yourself, we're the fifth richest country in the world. You know, we've found the vaccine. Apparently, you know, it's all down to us, and we've got children that don't have the basic communities at home heating food they don't they they haven't got that and and we we have a lot of um kids who come to school hungry they they haven't had breakfast quite there's a significant number who come in so 
in my hub area of SEN, we've got a larder. We've got cereal bars and we've got hot chocolate and biscuits and bread and we can make toast and we, you know, it's really hard because how is, how is a student going to possibly access education if they're hungry and they're fearful? just not gonna happen of course absolutely and the onus comes more pressures placed on teachers it make, yeah the absolutely yeah it opens up a wide range of safeguarding issues and local authorities are not getting the funding they need it's uh, and the chronic underfunding of schools this whole covid has exposed austerity yeah, in a, nutshell, a lot i mean <laughs> this is something we could talk about for hours yeah, it's a, it's a very like a, a very a very topical thing where I think everything really links back to the past decade of Gove policies and then also austerity, which is married to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm just very conscious of time. Okay, but I want to really really to ask you. Okay, um, yeah. two things you love about teaching, two things you don't necessarily love about, or just education in general. Um, the things I love is just working with children and young people. Hmm. That's that's I just. There's never a dull moment. Yeah, I've never been bored in the whole of my teaching career. I have never been bored, except if I'm doing that exam adjudication. That oh, is like, okay, yeah. but apart yeah. from that, so yeah. And I've met some amazing colleagues. And so I think for me that it's forever challenging, never dull. So it's so interesting. And that, that, that feeling that you do, you know that you are making a difference. Mm. It won't be obvious um, straight away. Sometimes it's obvious straight away, but most of the time it's not. And it might be years and years later that a student will contact me completely out of the blue. They've found me on Twitter or Instagram mm. or something. And you just think, oh my gosh, that I did actually make a difference there. So they're, they're the, the main things that I love. Things I don't love. I think the frustrations that we've just been talking about, the restrictions that we've put, the narrowness of the curriculum, those sort of more general things, uh, they're the things I get very frustrated about. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, it's surreal to think that, you know, um, teachers are frustrated people, you know, and they're frustrated for the right reasons. Their voices are not being heard. They're not being considered, you know, in, in conversations about inequality or even even brought into conversations to actually speak about things that are concerned them if you were to ask a general teacher about their genuine their general issues in the classroom you know it opened up an entire can of worms but that's something really weird absolutely we've got some incredible people on social media i'm in interaction with people yeah. like you know dan morrow and people very vocal deborah kid very vocal these vocal people deserve to be heard they are clearly speaking from a vantage point where you know mm. um their concerns are the concerns of the majority of us. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, definitely, definitely. And okay, Kate, to finish off, okay, because anti-small talk always does a little bit of small talk before we leave, okay? <laughs> um, I read in your bio, okay, you're a singer, okay? There's definitely some sort of musical element to, to you, okay? And I love asking people about what's on their playlist, okay? So, Kate, okay, what is... I know it's Christmas time. We're approaching Christmas, okay? I know. Are you an E17 fan? What, what's on your playlist right now? Oh, I honestly, I go totally cheesy at Christmas, okay. totally, totally cheesy. So um, this morning I was listening to Pentatonics. Um, okay. I sing a cappella, so I sing in an a cappella group and it's just, I love it. Very frustrating that we can't actually get together and rehearse. There's five, five of us in the, in the group. Um, 
and we, yeah, we should have had gigs throughout the summer and that kind of stuff. But my musical influence is diverse. Um, I, my parents are both folk singers okay. and my dad is in his 80s and he sings in a shanty group. Wow, wow. <laughs> so I've had like folk music all my life, but I was also a chorister. And uh, so I was brought up in the Church of England and I was a, one of the first girl choristers. And so all of that kind of Christmas music that you'd have in uh, in churches, mm. I, I like to listen to that. So carols from Kings and all of okay. that. Okay. But I was also a teenager in the 1970s. And so I was hugely influenced by punk rock and... <laughs> things like Blondie and Chrissy Hind and so yeah a whole mixture of folk music, indie folk, indie rock, punk rock and, okay, <laughs> and, okay. and church music so hey yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a quite eclectic mix absolutely isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I know I know but one of the things that I'm absolutely loving at the moment is the um, Scandinavian indie rock scene and oh. it's, it's quite niche and really, really interesting. So a real sort of blend of um, instrumental, acapella, folk music, mm. bass, and then some real kind of interesting electronic sounds. Okay. But, oh, I, I just love all sorts of music. I, I love live music. Can't wait to start going to pubs and listening to bands again. I'm looking forward to Spice Girls reunion when that starts. <laughs> Uh, of course you are, Shireen. Of course you are. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what happens to me. Well, I, just, I just play everything. Like, I mean it. I got the most eclectic taste ever. I just. I love it though. It's it's because music. I mean, it just makes you happy, and mm. and I just I absolutely love it. So all sorts of music. I'm always willing to listen to the what my students are listening to, and they they will listen to what I'm listening to. I like different world music, so I'll listen to. Um, one of my students from Kenya, I was listening to sort of some Kenyan folk music and it was just like, whoa, I'm loving this. Let's kind of like listen to a bit more of that. So yeah, all sorts. All that's sorts definitely. It's just a, it's, I think one thing you can evoke memories with people. I think that's one thing. I think I shared the song by, oh, where's it, what's, it, what's it called? Um, I shared uh, Massive Attack a couple of weeks ago. Right. And the number of people that messaged me saying, Shreb, I played that at my wedding. That was oh. a prom. And it was the other <laughs> song as well, uh, Stay by Lisa Loeb. Oh, yes. It's a beautiful song. And I think someone DM'd me saying, Shreb, you know, that was the first song at my wedding in like 1996. I'm like, I was only four years old at the time. I'm really sorry, but I just <laughs> love that song. Yeah. But I just, I just love how it evokes positive memories for people. And uh, if you could, I, I like to sign off on social media on a positive note. And if you yeah. can create that, those memories for people, it's, uh, it is really special. And uh, I've managed to connect with some incredible people like yourself as well, which is really, I think it's enriched me as well. Sometimes I listen back over my podcast and think, you know what? I can embed that into my practice or I didn't think of it this way. And I think that's the purpose of making these really, you know, powerful collaboration connections with people. Yeah, I love that. I love listening to other people's experience of the front line. And as you're absolutely right. We can learn, we can learn so much. There's always something to learn, isn't there? Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to, fin okay, uh, uh, to finish off, Kate, okay. So um, I'm just going to do the outro, okay. So I'll just do the outro, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, those of you guys listening, hey, this has been Kate Field, myself, Shreb Khan, and Kate Field. Uh, Kate is absolutely incredible, one of, the, one of the best people I've met across social media. This is an educator who's got an absolute you know, a library of knowledge. Um, uh, knowledge and SCN is absolutely incredible. 
She's tweets at Kate Field. I'll leave a uh, link in our Spotify bio as well. Uh, but no, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's, it's been brilliant. I can't believe how quickly the time has gone. I know, actually. I know time just flies, doesn't it? <laughs> it really realize, yeah. does. So thank you so much, Reeve. It's just been brilliant. Absolutely thank brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti Small Talk and today is our ninth episode in our Heroes Without Capes Voices from Within the Classroom podcast series. Over the past six or seven, eight weeks, we've been talking to our nation's educators about their views on education, getting an understanding of their stories, things they love, things they don't necessarily love, things they found challenging during the course of this global pandemic. Today I'm delighted to announce we have the wonderful Rosie Georgiou who tweets at EduFeminist talking to us about her experiences, her inspirations and her incredible PhD work. Hello Rosie and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's really, really exciting. Um, I think I come across your Twitter handle at one stage. I thought, who is Edu Feminist? And I've got to have this <laughs> on some stage. So uh, that's our first question, actually, okay? Who is the Edu Feminist? Okay, um, well, so I guess if I go by the identity on the Twitter handle, that is my teaching Twitter. Um, and they're the two things that are really important to me, education and feminism. Um, and for a while, I think that I thought they were separate. Um, so my original handle ne- didn't have anything to do with my feminism or my okay. politics. And it was originally Rosie Outlook 305. Mm. So when I first started as a trainee, I was really excited about everything. And I felt that I had quite a rosy outlook on education. Um, and as time went on and I've gone on and done things like my master's and now my PhD, I've realised how important my feminism actually is to me as a person and to my identity in general. So that's why my Twitter handle is edufeminist because I'm an educator and I'm a feminist and I think they are really the two core strands of my identity absolutely absolutely that's that's really cool because i'd consider myself as a feminist not necessarily an active one but uh i'm just gonna sound like a really strange question i cut off topic okay um out of the three like there's different strands of feminism okay is there one in particular that you prefer or would generally associate yourself more than others or do you think as it was a general thing that you just want to endorse do you mean this like the three waves of feminism yes yes Okay, I, do you know what? This is one of my favourite questions because we're actually in the fourth wave. We are actually in the fourth wave. The whole social media technical, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're actually in the fourth wave. And so I consider myself a fourth wave feminist. Um, one of my favourite things about fourth wave feminism is that it is not happy with the work that the previous three waves have done. So women have achieved amazing things. We've got the vote. Um, you know, women are working and we're working towards closing the gender pay gap and women are having children are campaigning for flexible work. So there are lots of brilliant things that have happened, but there are some things that fourth wave feminism really points the finger at previous waves and says, that's not good enough. So one of the key facets is that it's intersectional um and that feminism until the 90s really did not represent enough women it was only serving a particular demographic so third wave and fourth wave feminism are really campaigning for intersectional feminism and equality across 
all kinds of people from all walks of life. So that's why I identify as a fourth waiver, because I think although we've achieved great things, there's a lot more to be done, mm. um, particularly in representing lots of different kinds of women and femininity and also campaigning for men and masculinity because feminism doesn't just serve women and i think it's really important that we remember that there are lots of issues with toxic masculinity absolutely really don't get spoken about enough in public forums and feminists are doing the work for men um and i think that that's something that's important as well no you're absolutely correct and i think you're right i think the sentiment i always get with fourth wave feminism that progress kind of it needs to carry on. It's not, it's, it's yeah. an endless uh, uh, model towards a movement and a vehicle towards social change. And it's going to happen through, you know, innovating, changing and adopting that intersectional design. You're absolutely right. I was watching, was it Ross Kemp on Gangs or something? And he was in somewhere like Colombia and there was, um, you know, uh, ladies there working there in the fields uh, um, picking, um, I think it was coffee, I think they were picking. And uh, it, it played in the back of my mind thinking that we've had great success here in the UK but that level of success for women across in other countries, women of colour, you know, uh, mm. even our um, LGBTQ plus community, how we can adapt that in there. It's really, really important that we branch out and we bring everyone. And I think it's really boils down to the idea of it's equality for everyone or it's equality for no one. So it's yeah. uh, also recognising privilege. I think this is what 2020 has kind of been about, leading 2021. It's recognising our privileges as, you know, white people, Asian people, uh, even with our genders as well. So all these sort of like, you know, strands of inequality or equality kind of need to be crossed over for us to, to tear apart social structures and, and say, yeah, things are not fair for you because of this, this and this, not just because of one characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think my favourite thing, probably if I had to sum up fourth wave feminism, I would say it's not enough. Mm. Like, I think that's how fourth wave feminists feel. I mean, I know I'm speaking for a really big group here. <laughs> uh, it's definitely how I feel. The, yeah, this is great, but it's not enough. And I think that it taps into lots of the things that we've seen in 2020 as well, like racism, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you need to educate yourself. You need to be aware of your own privilege. And in being aware of your own privileges, you need to be aware of the fact that other people do not have that. So having your eyes open, being aware that that is not enough. Your own lived experience being the only lens that you see the world through is not enough. So yeah, I think um, the other thing I love is that it's online. Um, I love the art being made. I think it's fantastic. Postmodern, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Abstract art, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great and it's, you know, I mean, platforms like Instagram have really taken a turn in the sense that well I don't know about you but when I first got my Instagram account I was taking photos of my food and like I didn't get that far, uh, get that far. No. Uh, no no I didn't know the sunset you know like my, I my them, yeah I've got a few sunset photos yeah yeah I think some yeah. of them yeah yeah but it was like it was this autobiographical platform right where you were sharing your life with your loved ones and sometimes a wider platform whereas now when you or maybe because I I'm part of a feminist echo chamber on there. So I do need to be mindful of that. But when I log onto that platform, I see a lot of content that's been made particularly for the platform. So some amazing activism by body positive influencers and illustrators and content creators. People are making 
digital activist content in the form of artwork and clips and sounds and podcasts and putting stuff up on Instagram as a way of sharing. And I think that kind of that aspect of it can go viral, that potential, the potential for something to go viral, I think is one of the things that's so exciting about the movement. Because when something goes and all of a sudden that engagement increases and your audience explodes mm. and you're reaching people that otherwise you wouldn't reach and then more traditional forms of media start to become engaged in the activism, yeah. I think that's when it gets really exciting. I'll never forget Oprah's Me Too speech, mm. Golden Globes. Yes, yes, I remember that, yes, yes. That was such an amazing moment in history because not only was the speech itself powerful, the art that came from that, the posters, the photos of her, the captions, um, all of the hashtags that come with it as a way of archiving the process. Mm. I think that's something that I'm also really interested in is how do we archive the content that we've made that is part of our digital activism? Because mm. once it's published, provided you don't delete it, it's there forever. Yeah. I mean, and arguably, even once it's been deleted, it's there forever. But mm. I'm not necessarily tech savvy enough to kind of work around that limitation mm. but yeah so that that sense of sharing content that is activist the way in which it's shared and the potential for really big engagement because of the nature of the movement and how it spreads so quickly mm. I just love it I think it's so exciting no you're right it becomes a world of its own doesn't it which is really cool that's what I always find yeah absolutely absolutely even like when I'm blogging and stuff and even podcasting you see people in like I don't know Afghanistan listening to you thinking wow you know how did it get there it's insane yeah. and, you know, it's reached someone else and the, the global outreach of it's enormous as well well it's unlimited potential in that respect once you release something if it resonates it's got unlimited potential and I think you realise with that activism that actually you represent people and that's really important because what we're noticing about social media is that you are able to represent people that on traditional forms of media may feel that they are unrepresented. Yep. So therefore social media creates this platform for the minorities the marginalized voices right definitely, um, definitely. that's really cool because all of a sudden it's like a place where you find your tribe mm. and people think like you do and share your ideas there's so much about that that's brilliant i mean of course there there are limitations with everything Every, mm. everything has a danger but um i think yeah that's why fourth wave feminism excites me so much because it's moved from the page onto what I would consider more of a platform. Yep, yep um, absolutely. And it brings with it this whole sort of sense of performance and theatre. And I don't think that feminism was particularly theatrical before now. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that there are people who are taking photographs and they're dressing up um, or dressing down and you've got these body positive influencers who are posing naked, who are campaigning for the fact that they should be able to do that because slimmer people were doing it, not having their content removed, but um, well, essentially fatter people that have put naked photos up, have had their content removed. And then there's been activism around that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's amazing. It's a really reactive movement, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's needed at a time where we need, do need social change and where, you know, marginalized voices are not being heard. It's uh... It's fascinating, something I definitely need to be, you know, getting into more and understanding more because 
if I, like I think me and Carl Pupe talked about Action Hero Teacher. Shout out to Action Hero Teacher. I know you're going to be listening to this, but me and him talked about if we put our name to a, a particular flag and we say we're going to be inclusion, diversity, we do talk about all strands of that. We can't simply mm. include people. So I've been trying to educate myself more and more on transphobia because a lot of my friends have said to me, Shreve, I've never heard anyone been transphobic. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't mean it doesn't mm. exist. It's definitely out there in the public domain and, and the trans community do feel very targeted. So educating using the right you know pronouns and nouns and you know addressing people with they and, and asking them you know what they feel comfortable with asking them about and in, in, in a in a sincere and compassionate way not in a transactional way it's, it's a learning curve and a process and i think we're going to do that by having these conversations do you know what i've got a couple of thoughts on that one i don't think it's hard mm-hmm. um i don't i'm not dismissing a big issue but what i mean is hello my name's rosie my pronouns are she her What's your name and what are your pronouns? I don't think it has to be a particularly difficult conversation to have. I think if you introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, I, that's a really comfortable way of doing it. And it normalizes it. I have my pronouns on my email sign off at work and on my email sign off on my personal email and on my Twitter handle. Um, I actually think it's really important. So yeah, I do think that, I mean, my brother is gay, so we have conversations about gender, the importance of your identity, feeling seen for who you are, being accepted and loved for who you are, not being dismissed or invisible. Um, so I have a lot to thank him for in the sense that I'm interested in these things as a feminist anyway. I do a lot of reading around gender and pronouns, um, so maybe I have a natural bias towards that. But yeah, I also have those conversations at home with my family but yeah so I, what I'm, I don't think it should be difficult hello my name's Rosie I go by she her what's your name and we're teaching children Absolutely. with children who are growing up mm-hmm. in a world where this is more important than ever before mm-hmm. I have I've taught children that are tra- transitioning mm-hmm. and they need to feel that they're seen and represented even though I myself am not transitioning and at the don't have any plans to in the future um you know if that doesn't change we'll find out but so i yeah i make it i make it my business to make sure that all children feel that in one way or another they're represented and respected by me absolutely absolutely that's the way forward you know that and i think that's why we struck up such a uh, a good conversation to start with i think we did zoom before and it lasts like two hours and it was about inclusion i can see you know how passionate you are about it um but linking into this fourth wave feminism rosie okay so in your bio again okay, we spoke about okay you're doing a phd at the montford okay um yeah. okay can you like shed some light on that because i know you're very passionate about the work that you're doing okay and it's very particular like i've never heard of anything like this before so it's unique okay but you'll shed some light on that for us please <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i'm more than happy to do that so I am in my first year of my PhD. I wrote my proposal up in the summer. Um, and because I'm in my first year, I'm still very much in the stages of having the project completely approved by the university. I'll have my first review in January. Um, but the proposal at the minute outlines the following. So I will be tracing the shifts in feminist politics and considering the ways in which Chicklet responded to these concerns, if at all, in the 90s. Um, some research has been done on that 
before. So my original contribution to knowledge will be identifying those gaps with contemporary chiclet, if it still exists, because their chiclet has been declared dead on many occasions. Um, and then taking all of the findings, so that will form my literature review and the critical component of my research, taking all of the findings as to the relationship between feminist politics and chiclet, and then filling that gap with my own creative writing. So the, the proposal essentially outlines that I will pioneer a new feminist chiclet genre, which doesn't exist at the moment. That's ambitious, but really cool, actually, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but really cool. When I say it out loud, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I'm writing, the words come. Yeah. Um, but when I, you know, when I speak the words out loud and it goes from being something in my head to something real that I share with other people, it is, yeah, a very ambitious project and quite scary. But somebody has to do it. Absolutely. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth thing. Before we started, like, to our listeners, before we started this conversation, myself and Rosie were talking about being the first one to say things and sometimes the onus is on us. Sometimes you've got to grab the bull by the horns, don't you, and say, do you know what? I need to say this. Now, I've got an opportunity to say, I'm going to say, or I need to research this. And it needs to be something in yeah. the public domain. So if you're passionate about it, absolutely, yeah. I think it's going to be incredible, you know that. And obviously, I'll follow your journey as well along the way, which would be really, really cool as well. So, yeah. Um, so, Rosie, okay, we've got some more questions here for you, okay? Um, yeah. Let's go for some like general teacher questions, okay, just to get to know you a bit better, okay? So if we walked into your classroom right now, let's say you're teaching at, yeah, because no one teaches at seven o'clock. I'm just saying, <laughs> uh, if let's say we walked into your classroom on a normal day, what would we expect to typically see from your English classroom? Yeah, so yes. I'm an English teacher. Um, I teach year 11, 12 and 13 because I'm part time to allow me to do my studying. So you will see a very focused exam class. Um, so I teach the exam texts to the GCSE groups. I think I'm a, I'm a firm but fair teacher. Um, I like a calm, focused room. I have very clear routines um, and I like to provide structure for my students. It comes from really feeling that structure is one of the things that my kids need from me. So the schools that I've taught in, for the most part, um, with the exception of a couple of years, serve largely deprived backgrounds um, so I have a lot of underprivileged students and sometimes home life can be very chaotic so what I try to do is to create a really safe structured environment for my kids so that they come in they know exactly what to expect um, to be consistent so that's one of the things that I take very seriously. No routines routines for learning are very very important because you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know if there are any consistency at home at all. So if you're the only consistent person in their life, dare I say, especially in these deprived schools, I went to, I work myself in a very deprived school as well. If they don't have that level of consistency at home, they can get it at school. And having those clear expectations, routines are really, really important. In terms of behavior management, um, what works for you? Because I know people try loads of different things. Do, uh, is there anything that particularly works for you? People do countdown, people do all sorts of different things. Okay, is there anything that you found particularly good? Because I need some tips because I've got some difficult classes. I'm not lying. This is <laughs> um, well, the, the behavior routines I've used, they have they've depended on the school that I'm in and the culture of the school 
at the, at the moment, the school that I'm in has um, a really big focus on every teacher being consistent with school policy. So some of the policies that we use are countdown five, four, three, two, one. Students respond really well to it because all teachers are using it. Um, so I make sure that I use what other teachers are using because it's really effective in that school. One of the things that I would say is a behavior tool that lots of people don't talk about is marking the books. Um, I know my kids inside out and mark their books. Um, I'm really hot on that. Not everybody is and marking is quite unfashionable at the moment. It's fallen out of fashion. Um, and I, I, hate so I'm aware. I, hate I hate it to be honest with you. I hate marking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's boring. Do you but... know what? I realised how powerful marking was in my training year because I was doing Teach First. I had a year 11 group. They were a set two and i think we'd got to the october half term and i hadn't looked at the books i was busy surviving mm. i was busy surviving and um one day one of the students said to me miss are you ever going to look at our books and i had a bit of a reality check mm. because my mentor then said we really need to look at the books um and i once i started to mark their work and I knew what their strengths were, and I learned the students from their work, I, I transformed as a teacher. Um, I was then marking that year 11 group's work every week. So they would do exam practice on a Friday period five because English was timetabled in at Friday period five. I think that is a terrible timetabling mistake. And if anybody that timetables is listening, I would advise that core subjects are never timetabled in on a Friday period five, I would get your 11 to do PE or an option subject. I agree. <laughs> or food tech or art. Yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So I had a Friday period five with my set two year 11 and I gave them exam practice every week. Um, they were a big group. There were 32 of them. And I will be honest and say that marking their work at first was difficult. Mm. I got very quick at it. Um, so yeah, the long answer to your question is I do mark as a behavior management tool because I know the students really well. I know what they're good at. It allows me to have personal conversations with them. Um, I'm not advocating for a ridiculous teacher workload. I don't believe in that at all, but I think marking where it matters yeah. and that's what's important. Yeah. Marking where it matters is key. And for me, exam groups are really, really important. And those students went on to make incredible progress. I had a boy in that group. They were all boys. But this particular boy was working an E when I first marked his work in the October. And um, I wasn't sure of my marking. So I asked the head of English to moderate me. And she said, no, he's working at an E grade. Anyway, the end of the year, he came out with two Bs. That's incredible. Mom bought me a massive bottle of perfume and a bottle of wine. Oh, that's incredible. That's really, really cool. I did it, but it was nice. Mm. So, yeah, I think, and I always do that with my exam groups. I like to know them really well. Mm. I think right. knowing how they write, I teach sociology and RE, so understanding how they analyse text and use their sources as well is really, really important. Um, it's very, I think the issue I think teachers find in marking is, especially when it's purposeless, and we do get purposeless marking at times where, you know, you, there's a school that I worked at where you'd have a different color pen for each year group. Mm. And you'd, you'd stick in this sheet and this colored sheet. And it's not going to empirical data behind it or reasoning behind it. It's not been mandated or validated everywhere. 
So anywhere, any, any other country, any other school. So it can be add to workload, but if you're with the key exam groups, like I teach a key exam groups as well, having that dialogue with their work is important. You get to know them. And I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's got to have a purpose. It's got to be meaningful and impactful on progress. Otherwise, we're doing it for the sake of it. And it shouldn't be, the, and it shouldn't be like teaching for the sake of marking as well. It should be teaching for the sake of teaching and assessing to assess for progress. That sort of thing. I don't think anything in teaching should be for the sake of anything. Mm. If it is not in the best interest of the kids mm. that are in front of you, you shouldn't be doing it. That's how mm. I feel. I think everything should be really purposeful. And I think if something is really purposeful, then you get buy-in. I don't think it's hard to get buy-in from teachers because teachers want the kids to do well. I think when you reach those obstacles is where teachers as professionals are starting to question, but why are we doing this? Mm. Is this additional workload for the sake of workload and for busy work? Or is it in the best interest of the kids? Because all of the teachers that I know, um, I know some really respectable professionals, always want to do what's right by the kids you know i've worked with people that would go in on a saturday morning every week for months um unpaid without question because it was the only way to get this is back when we did coursework it was the only way to get those kids over the line it was not requested by the school it wasn't even encouraged by the school but that particular teacher had a group that really needed extra intervention no additional time to do it rang parents and said I really want to support your child I'm going to come in on Saturday between 9 and 12 and I'm going to do it from December through till February um, this is time that I'm willing to give please send your son and the kids responded really well to it the workload shouldn't have been so that she had to do that mm. and I that and I'm not promoting it but what I'm saying is all of the teachers that I've worked with and especially the ones that I've respected they always want to do right by the kids and getting buy-in on that has never been hard in my experience mm. the thing that starts to get resistance where teachers are saying I'm not convinced that that strategy is going to work or be effective or is actually in the best interest of the kids that's when teachers start to question things Absolutely, absolutely. And people start pulling in different directions. I think uh, when I worked in schools as well, and we've had, you know, marking policies introduced, I like to know where they've come from. I like to know, you know, where has it been successful? Can we go to this school or this institution? Can we see best practice? And if it's not demonstrated by senior leaders to us, how do we know what is best, best practice? So, um, and even the whole notion of toxic, you know, productivity, people being productive, making displays, simply because they've got time to make a display or they've got to take a, a, a objective off for the day. I like to think that if I've taught my lessons to a, a, a respectable level, to a respectable level, and I've kept my respect intact as well while teaching those lessons as well, I like to think I've done okay. But I think there's this notion that we have to look busy all the time as teachers, which again leads to things like burnout and people becoming more and more disillusioned what we're doing and you know, you can see our retention and recruitment figures, you know, the number of teachers that have left depression in the past. I think it was 40,000, I think in 2019. I can't imagine what it's going to be like post-pandemic, but um, we've got to somehow find a, a middle ground that works. That's, you know, aid student progress also um, you know, allows teachers to have some form of work-life balance. It shouldn't be the case to have to have a, have a day off or, you know, go part-time simply to have a work-life balance. Teaching should fit around our lives. That's what I think anyway. No, I agree with you completely. I think we've got the well-being paradox, haven't we? 
well-being is at the forefront of the teaching agenda mm. but if you speak to to some teachers at least not everybody feels very well mm. um and ultimately if you are in a good or outstanding school then you should feel well in the sense that you should feel supported your senior leaders um, should have structures and systems in place that allow for that balance to exist because it's a profession and we're professionals but we don't exist just as professionals we exist as human beings mm -hmm. so once we go home there needs to be space for home life, there needs to be space for relationships and for exercise mm. and overall health and well-being because your purpose on the air, while one of them might be to educate, there is more to life than that. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think a lot of teachers in particular I speak to, particularly the ones who've got their own families, they're able to create a bit more of a work-life balance, but it's the, dare I say, you know, the young single ones, the, the newbies, the young ones who are fresh into the teaching profession, they they are spending virtually every hour i think over the summer i put a tweet out about when i did my nqt year four years ago um i spent the entire summer in the school marking and planning you know getting things ready um doing displays painting classroom walls laying down floor tiles by the time october half term came i was burnt out i was finished and right. if i look back at it now did i need to do those things yeah i had the most beautiful looking classroom but was I well at the end of it? No, if anything, you know, it, it became a job and not a vocation. And I think so many of us are keen to avoid it becoming a, becoming a job and staying as a vocation. The only way we can do that is having that separation between the spheres. Yeah, I think so. If you're going to be a teacher, you have to love it. Mm. You have to love it because you are there working with young people. Um, you, you know, depending on your subject, I see some of my classes four or five times a week. And you are a key figure in those kids' lives. You need to be positive and healthy and they need to see that you are, yes, you're a teacher, you're there, you're delivering curriculum, you're sharing knowledge with them, but you're also a role model of what an adult looks like. Absolutely. You are a role model of what an adult looks like and that is a serious responsibility. You are there to model what adult health looks like, what adult well-being looks like, what adult success looks like and happiness, especially if you are teaching children who come from home lives where some of their adults don't do that successfully. Yep. Those things are really important. There is an alternative to the life that you have and education is the key. Mm. And I, I, I feel like a walking cliche whenever I say that. I really do. <laughs> I really do. Um, I do think education is the key. I really, <laughs> I really do. I mean, look, I'm back at uni. How many times have I been? I can't remember. Um, fourth or fifth time now. Um, but I've, for me personally, education is the key to happiness and overall well-being and health. Now I know that is not, it's not completely true for everybody. Not everybody is academic. However, there are certain qualifications, and as an English teacher, I feel this particularly strongly, that unlock the world to you. If you've got your English GCSE, the world opens you, you know, opens up to you. It opens its arms to you. You want to go and do a plumbing course at college? Have you got your pass in English? Cool, come in. Have you not got your pass in English? Sorry, you've got to do that first. So 
I feel that education is the key and I know that I teach a core subject and I feel massive sense of responsibility because of that um I think it's hugely hugely important literacy generally is hugely important mm. um yeah it started off with teacher well-being the fact that we're role models to me getting on my soapbox and talking about well, why <laughs> get, get to know you as an educator and, and get a real flavor of sort of like the background that you come from and everything and your perspective on things teacher well-being is a very interesting uh it's a very interesting thing so uh not too long ago i won or a couple of years ago i won colleague of the term i kept voting mm. for myself that's how i won it i'm not gonna lie to you i continue to vote for myself and i, I did win it and you know i'm a member of staff and someone gave me a bottle of chardonnay and uh, I was very confused. I was thinking, you know what? Maybe I'd win like a Rolls Royce. So I was being, I thought, you yeah, know, something really nice I'd win. And it's a bottle of wine. I was like, all right, fair enough, you know, I, I can't drink it. So I just gave it to one of the cleaners. But even that consciousness, that cultural sensitivity, knowing your staff, knowing that if, I, if we get something for well-being, it needs to be you know, representative. It needs to be something that everyone yeah. can access and have. I remember um, one of our members of staff, he was in a wheelchair. It's a good two or three years ago, and he won colleague of the term or colleague of the year, whatever it was. And his um, he couldn't access the hall because there wasn't wheelchair access into the hall, so he won it. He stood in the fire exit, which I thought was a, a real like um, a, a damning indictment of where the school was at the time in terms of its inclusion, diversity, etc. And I, and I always remember thinking back, how must he have felt? How must how, how demoralized must he have felt the fact that he couldn't access the main hall of the school or access wasn't made available to him? Surely that's better than winning a bottle of wine. That's my opinion anyway. So I think pitching it at people in a sensitive way is really important. So well-being is not a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. It's also, it's not a bottle of wine. Mm. And it's not a spa afternoon. And it's not arts and crafts on an inset day. Mm. It is not a plaster for all of the cuts that you've picked up in the term it's doing what you can to prevent the cuts and it's doing what you can to protect your colleagues and help your colleagues and sometimes teacher well-being is walking in to the english office or to the staff room on a really tough day and somebody saying to you you know what you look like you're having a difficult day what can i do to help right now yeah. i was talking to a friend last night we teach at different schools and then um, she's an un qualified English teacher doing her English um, degree because she wants to become a qualified English teacher wow. which is the most amazing thing in the world right so she's an unqualified English teacher unqualified scale still pretty much a full timetable she is a phenomenal woman um, she's doing her English degree in her spare time she had a an assignment due and she had felt that the workload had been unsustainable I mean Things are difficult for qualified teachers at the moment. She's unqualified and doing an undergraduate degree and she's a mum. So she has a lot on her plate. Yeah. She had an assignment due at noon and she hadn't finished. And one of her colleagues took a look at her and said, you know, you, you're not looking good today. What's up and can I help? And between themselves, using their free lessons, colleagues covered for her so that she could finish her assignment. That's where it should be. And that I think that is teacher well-being, stepping in and protecting each other and helping each other when it really matters. If the marking workload is too much, sometimes leadership saying, you have a particularly heavy marking workload, we're going to give you an afternoon off this week 
to help with your marking workload or you're not going to be put into invigilate for the exam so that you can use that time to do your marking. Um, I've been really fortunate to work in schools where those systems have been put in place and I think that I'm I'm lucky that I've seen it because if you haven't seen things that have been put in place to protect people and their well-being sometimes you get tunnel vision and you feel like this is really hard and I can't see a way out mm. um, so when somebody puts their hand out to you and says let me help you I think that's it for me anyway the well-being is let me help you it is absolutely job it can be long hours um, and sometimes it can be thankless particularly with the attacking narrative in the general media that can be really hard when you've had a really tough day at school and you see in the papers teachers are being branded as lazy and they don't work hard enough and they're overpaid and they were on full pay throughout lockdown and not working those narratives can be very they can be very difficult um, to stomach so when your colleagues say let me help you that that I think is what well-being is in my experience no I totally agree with you I def definitely think it's people stepping in when they realize a crisis is happening or before a crisis absolutely yeah um, and I think it, it, a lot of that really manifests top down from senior leadership who take well-being seriously and don't make it a one-off event um, um, I think what's happened is the, the idea itself became a hashtag really quickly and then mm. everything became about teacher well-being so people were you know having curry nights together and that was well-being and they were doing you know after school ping pong and things like that or you know and, and basketball and netball and that would become the whole well-being sort of veneer that everyone operated by i think changing that gaze and realizing that we have got a workload problem is very serious the workload problem in education full stop is very serious. You know, my own workload, like I said to you before we started as well, I'm just trying to cope with my lessons and nothing else. Whatever goes on in the world, I pick you up at 4.30 when I leave the building. Before that, whilst I'm there from 7.30 to 4.30, I just focus on my job that day. Nothing more and nothing less. Doing my duties, doing my registers, you know, my safeguarding, everything else we do around just the job that we do ourselves. So I think you're right. Well-being needs to be, you know, embedded into day-to-day -day interactions as well. And, I think we talk about kindness as well and how it's been kind of like, and it's kind of full circle how kindness has existed in Britain. So when Caroline Flack passed away and kindness became mm. the, the ultimate thing, you know, if you could be anything in the world, be kind. And you know, people were throwing kindness around like confetti, weren't they, at one stage in January? You know, come, you know, December now, and we're, you know, approaching, you know, how many deaths from COVID and, and the way teachers are being treated as well, it's a, it's a dark time. If anything, you know, we should be reverting back to that January sort of like enthusiasm about kindness and re-embedding into our interactions. I agree with you. I do agree with you. But I do not think kindness should be radical. Mm. I do not think kindness should be radical. Uh, for me, it is a basic expectation yeah. that human interactions are going to be kind. I want my colleagues to be kind. I want to be kind to my colleagues and I want my children, my students, I want them to see that I'm kind and I'm kind to them and that there is a culture of kindness, that it is normal. You know, this idea, this be kind being a hashtag on the internet that suggests that being kind is somehow radical, that that's some kind of activism in itself. That's wrong. That is wrong that we need that. That there is a serious imbalance 
if we need to remind each other to be kind. I mean, I feel like that's really callous me saying that. I don't mean to be callous. I just, I'm disappointed. I am disappointed that we have to promote it like that on social media, that it has to trend on Twitter and Instagram, that people die um, at like this, this altar so that there's, there's this shared collective responsibility for kindness. I agree with you that that really, that is the foundation, isn't it? Be kind. Let me help you. What can I do for you? I've got your back. We're professionals together. We're a unit. Yep. I think that sense of unity is really important as well, where you have any kind of really deep seated division. There are problems and there are tensions. Um, that being a team is so important for, for us as professionals, but also for the children. When I've worked on teams where the staff are, they're, you know, they're, they're gelled and they move together. Um, and there's that sense of cohesion and consistency. The, the kids respect all of the professionals in the same way and they behave in the same way. Where the children feel that there is a division or that there are teachers that don't support other teachers, they can smell it. They know. They know. Mm. And that's when you start to get problems with behaviour as well, because there's a lack of consistency. And there's this sense that the, the teachers are not supporting one another mm. and the student body becomes aware of it and it becomes part of the fabric of the school. And I think from the things that I've seen in my very short teaching career of um, seven going on to eight years, I think that's where you get your biggest problems and trying to shift that on the staff body takes real, real skill and hard work and very experienced leaders. I've seen it done once um, in one of the four schools that I've worked in and trying to shift the culture of a school, extremely difficult once the damage has been done. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're right what you say about children picking up on things, you know, uh, children see through BS quite well, actually, to be fair, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know they, these, these, these young puppies, man, they know what's real, they know what's fake. And you know, they often pull me over, they go, can't, don't say it like that. I'm like, right, cool, fine, I'll change how I speak and whatnot. I'll change the sort of language I use. But they are so black and white. And it's the small things. I think me and Oliver, uh, Oliver Wright spoke about it, Oliver SLT. You know, I know he's, I know he's listening. He always listens to the podcast as well. He spoke, spoke about people leaving a tray of glues in your glue sticks in your classroom. The way they're left, they could be tossed onto a table or gently placed with a smile. Children pick up on that, and they know. I've worked in an environment where my line manager used to um, very openly give me very uh, demeaning looks. And the children used to pick up on that. Said, oh, why, why is she looking at you like that? I'm like, oh, no, there's mm. no problem. We're cool. But they knew something was up. And eventually, by the time I actually spoke to this person, the rapport had kind of already been broken. It lost, we lost, it, you know, a lot was lost in translation with that. But you're right. Kindness doesn't need to be a radical, out there, you know, uh, populist thing. If you can't be kind to someone, leave them alone. 
wouldn't that just be fine? You know, just, yeah. I think it kind of links to what we're talking about, trauma dumping. I know we started talking about that, but it kind of links yeah. to... Yeah. Uh, so, Rosie, okay, we've got a couple more questions here for you, okay? I'm just conscious of time as well. Um, what has been your proudest moment as a teacher so far? Oh, I, th- I thought... If you can choose one. <laughs> my, my answer's really cheesy. Um, I just, I'm proud every day. I'm proud every day for different reasons. Um, I'm proud when I mark a piece of work and a student has made brilliant progress or they've listened to some of the feedback they were given. Um, I think like feelings of immense pride in myself as a teacher are usually when a child picks English at A-level because then it's a choice. And that, that for me, I feel like I've won because up until the end of GCSE, English is compulsory. Mm. And when a child chooses English and they've been in my class, I feel like a winner. Um, And yeah, teaching A-level, I I love it. It's one of my, the highlights of my week. Um, If a child then goes on to do English at university, you can bet I'm going to cry. Um, (laughs) when children tell me or young adults tell me in my A-level class they've applied to do English at uni I actually get a bit teary because I feel like I have done my job I feel like I have delivered the curriculum in such a way that they've been engaged and they've loved it Um, so yeah and on you know results days because not because of what the grade stands for, but because the fact that it's a passport onto the next stage. If you've got your pass and you're going to go on to be a mechanic and that's your dream and you needed English to get there and I helped you get there, I feel so good about that, you know? So if I've opened doors, I'm proud. Um, That's when I feel like I'm, I was put on the earth to do this and I've done it. And in one way or another, I've supported you to go and change the world in your your own way and yeah so that's what i see my role as ultimately you're right absolutely we're here to raise you know the next generation of citizens to be socially aware you know conscious of our you know our the inequalities of our society you know aware of the damage of the climate you know small things like that just being sensible respectable citizens citizens for our society and we do that through our interactions with them and like you say we model behaviors you know what yeah. they see from us is you know what they will probably go out and de- you know, model in themselves in the future you, sometimes you know it can be one class i was very fortunate in my nqt i had one class who it just clicked from the moment i walked in there it, and they're all boys and it was like a we used to talk about football for half an hour and then we teach for half an hour, that sort of thing. We used to have two hour lessons together, back to back. It was RE mm. and some class it just clicks. And I was just constantly proud of walking in there and seeing how respectful they were to each other, not just yeah. to me. They'd hand each other books out. This is a class who'd put each other headlocks at the beginning of the year. <laughs> Towards the end of the year, they were opening doors for one another. And there was such a sense of kindness in the classroom and that just come from interactions that we had with them. And you're right. I think, you know, the small things that we do, you know, they, they have an impact and, you know, we as teachers, we should be proud of going into work every single day. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be a blessing. No, there's so much that's lovely about it. You know, it's small things like sometimes when you're in your classroom and you see the kids arriving in the morning and somebody drops a bit of litter and then they pick it up. I feel proud because nobody is looking and 
one of my favorite things is um you know people say the definition of integrity is what you do when no one's watching yes yes i've had that quote i feel like if my students have integrity and they don't know i've seen it but they've shown a kindness mm. or they've done the right thing whether that's protecting the planet or looking after a friend or if my students have integrity, I, that is actually the most important thing for me. That is the most important thing for me. If my students are good human beings and I had a part to play in that, um, I would go as far as to say that's more important than any qualifi qualification that I can teach them. No, you can go back and you can do the GCSEs again. Not that I want you to and it will be hard for you. Mm. But if you are a good human being and people are kind to you and you are kind to them and you have support you can go on to do anything if you are an abhorrent person and nobody wants you to do well and you don't have the support good luck getting anywhere mm. so, no you're absolutely right you're absolutely right so they it's about fostering that sort of culture within your classroom to say not only that they can achieve but also you're looking out for the more holistic pastoral side to them as well, rather than just, you know, they come in, you take a registry, start teaching. You want to know how they are. You want to know how they're doing as well as what they're doing as well. Yeah, look, they are the future leaders. Mm. They are the future leaders. One of us is teaching the next prime minister. Hopefully, we yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we don't know who is, but someone is. Someone's teaching the next prime minister. Someone's teaching a brilliant surgeon or somebody who's going to go on to be a professor at a university. Somebody's teaching a generation of teachers mm. and they're going to go on to share their values. Um, I think that responsibility cannot be underplayed. Mm. We are integral figures in that respect. Mm. We are role models. We are there every day. Um, come rain or shine during the good the bad and the ugly mm. we're there and the students see us so if they remember that you were kind and that you tried your best and that you made them feel safe and secure and they learned when they were with you that's that's what it's all about isn't it and there's a special kind of magic when you have those days and those lessons where all of those components are there it's magical there's nothing like it no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, maybe it brings me back to my NQT, actually. Yeah. We used to have, uh, particularly in that year, where because it started off such a difficult class, so challenging with their behavior, and it took a lot of time initially to start. It, it did click straight away, but it took a lot of time to just embed the small things, the sort of like, you know, this classroom routines. And once you become a consistent figure in their lives, you can see how their behavior changed. They know what to expect, you know, and it's the lack of consistency they may have at home or in society full stop, especially with this pandemic, no one knows what's going on. School is there, it's our safe place as well as their safe place as well. Do you know, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I think that maybe my students might think I'm extreme, um, particularly when I take on a new year 10 class. By the time they get to year 11, they're so well trained, they already know. Mm. But with the year 10 group, I learned this from um, a teacher that taught my brother. So I, started to work at the school my brother was at when he was in year 13 so it was really interesting oh wow that must have been yeah that must have been something yeah, yeah they they knew who i was as a teacher because we were in the same borough um but my brother's a very different character to me i think it's fair to say that i don't think he would disagree at all okay um, he's not academic 
and the school were aware of that and they were trying to get him over the line with his A-levels and I am really quite academic and I like book smart um, and so we're very very different and when I got there somebody actually said to me I hope you're not going to be anything like your brother and um, oh, wow. <laughs> I, I said I hope it reassures you that I'm not uh, and then I kind of had to work harder, I felt, to prove myself to the general staff body that we were not the same. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. So I was, I was working there and I've forgotten what I was saying. What was the question? Um. Right. I, I met one of his history teachers and this guy is a legend at the school he has been there for so long. He has taught sons, fathers, brothers, cousins, friends, neighbours. He's taught history to the entire community. Okay. He's really well known. Um, and I said to him, you know, like, what's your secret? And he said to me, it's routines. And one of the things that he does is he gets the kids to number the pages in their exercise books and to create a contents page at the front of the book. And I asked him to show me because I was completely fascinated by this first time I'd ever heard it he's Irish and he said look I'm old school but I promise you this works so he showed me and he gets every child to number the pages of their exercise book and on the front there's a contents page and the contents page includes date the page number of the exercise book the title of the work and um, I asked him to show me how it works and I loved it so much because I am a neat freak. Uh, so now that's something that I do as part of the routines that I have in place. So when the students come into the room, first thing they do when they write down the title learning objective, they check the page number and they fill out their contents page. And it really helps with stuff like homework, because when I say, can you please make sure your homework is in the contents page? I don't have to search for it anymore. I can check the contents page. My homework's on page 18. I find it and I can mark it really easily. Um, That's a really like genius, smart, old school hack. <laughs> really smart. Yeah. Why, I don't think I just learned so much from this guy. And um, the wow. great thing was obviously like he taught my brother. So I had heard, I, I, like, I knew the myth before the man because my brother would come home and say, you won't believe what he did today. And um I'd heard all of these outlandish stories about him. He is very eccentric. Um, and when he taught me that, I have done it ever since. And it's really funny because now all of my students who I have taught meet my incoming cohort will say, you know, she'll get you to write down the page number on every page. And some of them come in and they, they almost look like scared and like, oh, are you going to get me to write down the page numbers in my book? And I say, yeah, we're going to write down the page numbers in your book. So I, I suppose it's like the legend continued, but it is almost, it's theatrical. It's not necessarily a completely um, important thing, but it is one of the structures that I have. And they know it, it's familiar. Yeah. If I missed a lesson and they've got cover work, they've put pages 32 to 35 is cover work. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it allows this sense of, I know what's coming. Mm. The title and the learning objective are going to be on the board. The date's going to be on the board. She's going to give me three minutes to write those things down. 
and then I have to fill out the contents page and then we will begin. So it's just coming back to the idea of safety and routines. I do think they're really important. I think safety routines and relationships mm. are integral to yeah, successful student teacher relationships. And once you've got the relationship down and they feel safe with you, then they can learn. No, you're absolutely right. One thing I love about that routine, it's tried and tested. It's been passed on by generations. And the fact yeah. that you adapted it, it's you've seen it. This is one thing I love about when teachers observe other teachers. You've seen what's worked in someone else's car. It's actually worked. You've seen it. You can now adapt it rather than it be something the school roll out as a policy. We're doing this and that's the end of it. If you've seen it physically working in demonstration and someone's made success out of it, you adapt it to your practice. You're like, damn, that was really good. And the legacy gets passed on and carried on and, and then it becomes a routine. So that, that's, how, that's, how we, that's how we teach. You know, we, we, you know, we model other people's practice in our own teaching. I pay homage to Mr. Lewis who used to say, <laughs> comedy first, teaching second. And I've kind of operated that way, you know, Dan. You know, my motto is, you know, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And that's what he lived by as well. So it's really important that we, we, we can adapt. That's a really good smart hack. If you're listening, if you're an NQT listening, you know, uh, you should copyright that. I think you should copyright that. <laughs> oh, your textbooks have content pages, you know. <laughs> content. But it's a very smart idea, actually. I really do like that. I, th that's what teaching is, right? You've got the mentor and the mentee. I mean, I was a qualified teacher at the point at which I moved to that school. But I always feel that I'm learning from my colleagues whether they're more or less experienced than me. But I have to say, um, I came into teaching at a time where we, the retention crisis had kind of really taken hold of the profession and um, more experienced members of staff were leaving. Um, and I just felt that I was learning so much from them. And do you know what, on the subject of kindness, they are the kindest human beings on the planet. Some of them watched me fall over onto my backside and didn't laugh. You know, I, cause I was so exhausted. My foot just went and I had a big box of books. They all skidded. Oh, wow. oh. Yeah. Yeah. And my glasses came off my face and skidded across the floor. That was the force with which I hit the ground. Oh wow. That, that must've been, yeah, must been awful. Yeah. <laughs> I've embarrassed myself a lot. I'm not going to lie. I've embarrassed myself a lot as a teacher. I've done things like managed to lock myself in the toilets um, and be late oh, to a lesson. That's happened to, me. That's happened to me on purpose. Or, I don't think I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've set off the fire alarm by straightening my hair in the ladies' toilets. The entire school had oh. to line up outside in the rain. That must have been like, quite embarrassing. Um, all students, all staff, non-teaching staff as well um because I singed my hair so I went outside and I was really embarrassed I kind of sidled up to the head teacher and I said um because they didn't know what the cause was they kind of they went back to like I don't know if it's the main switchboard or whatever it is they could identify that it was it had been set off in the ladies toilets but they had no idea why there was a fire in the ladies toilets um so I had to go and say to the teacher I'm really sorry I like to operate on honesty so I'm just going to tell you that mm. I burnt my hair in the ladies toilets and I set off the fire alarm uh, I got a special mention in briefing that week because I was given thanks for leading on the um the fire drill 
which was due to take place that half term. So they kind of, they took what I had done and used it as a fire drill, but that was embarrassing. So yeah, experienced colleagues and the kindness that they're willing to show trainees cannot be undervalued. Absolutely. Are you, shout out to our staff, our members of staff who are on TLRs and UPS. They don't get the respect they deserve. Many of them <laughs> really have to continue justifying their existence. You know, massive shout out to you guys and massive shout out to Gemma Waite who looked after me during my NQT. Yeah, she was uh, trying, she was uh, going for promotion after promotion. She's on upper UPS and uh, she just put her arm around me. Honestly, Rosie, she put my arm around me and said to me, Shreb, this is how we do it. You know, don't forget this deadline. It was a small, like, mothering thing, the little details, you know. I'd walk in late some morning. She goes, Shreb, don't worry. I've, you know, I'll, I'll put your computer on for you, etc." Uh, it was a small thing. Our, I, our staff on UPS, you know, our experienced teachers, you know, deserve a lot of respect. I'm in my fifth year. I don't consider myself as the most experienced. I'm not. But, you know, our experienced teachers deserve so much more respect than, than, than they receive at times. Yeah, I, no, I agree. My mentor, when I was training, um, I don't, I didn't realise how obvious it was that I was struggling, put it that way. And um, I came in one day and there was a card in my pigeonhole with a chocolate bar and the card said, you're doing great, keep it up. And I read it and I burst into tears um, because she had recognised that it was really tough and I was trying really hard and she was a brilliant mentor to me. She was always incredibly, incredibly kind um, to everybody. And I'm, I really think that I'm lucky that I had her as a mentor. She's made me the teacher I am, definitely. I'm still friends with her today. She is a true professional in every aspect of the word. And yeah, she was an experienced member of staff. So I have so much, so much to thank uh, the teachers who taught me those, like those tricks. They definitely made me who I am. Um, I've been just really lucky to work with some brilliant people. I think, yeah, myself as well included, to be fair, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to even like connect with many fantastic educators as well, whether it's through social media, it's open um, through Zoom, podcasting, etc., writing blogs. I think it's uh, everyone's got a library of knowledge we can tamper into and we can walk into and, and gain things out and learn things out. We're always on a, lear a constant learning journey. I remember I observed a teacher once during my NQT. He used to have an overhead projector. Remember the overhead projectors? Those yeah. right on. He used, to, he used to teach from that. He's a maths teacher, Mr. Smith. He's retired now, bless him. And I remember he used to wheel it around the school. He used to make a real, like, wheel, really annoying squeak. The wheel was, like, it needed oiling or something. And he'd wheel it around the school. And that was his teaching and learning toolbox, nothing else. He didn't have a planner. He just had his overhead projector. And he taught maths. He bossed results. He was incredible. And... I just learned so much because he knew the students. He'd pitch questions at them, like you know, grade eight or grade nine questions, knew them off the top of his head and students would write them down. His marking was fantastic as well, but he refused to do PowerPoint. He refused to do computers. And you know, those mavericks, those people, they still bring a smile to my face. They do exist. There's less and less of them out there, but um, <laughs> there are some incredibly experienced teachers who we can pick little nuggets of information out of and adapt them into our practice. And not only that, just appreciate their brilliance. Yeah, I know. I do. I mean, I'm I'm all for the maverick and the underdog. Uh, there's a part of me that really respects like that rebellious streak, and I think that actually quite a lot of teachers have it. 
um definitely the ones maybe the, maybe there are lots of them in english departments for sure but um, <laughs> i've definitely worked with lots of teachers who have a wicked sense of humor and who are rule breakers and revolutionaries in one way or another they're pioneering new things or you know using strategies that they know work that are really old school and modernizing them um it's a great job in that respect because it's been it's been done forever mm. and like there's this like really long lineage of what it means to teach and what it means to learn um yeah and we're part of that which is great no i definitely agree with you i definitely definitely agree with you right i'm just conscious of time okay but i've got one yeah. really big question for you i have to ask everyone okay you've been bracing yourself with this question okay i know the audience <laughs> as well okay what we're approaching christmas time okay yeah it's on your playlist oh christmas is michael buble for sure I was listening to E17 this morning just for the sake of it. So I'm not really a Christmas like song person, like, but I thought I'd give them a go today. Um, my usual go-to, I mean, I grew up on like Jennifer Lopez and Craig David. I love Craig David, the early Craig David. Shout out to Carl Pupe again, action hero teacher. Not the, not the current Craig David, the, the weird henchman. He's not, I mean, like the early 2000s. Is that the right one? Yeah. Born to do it and things like that. Yes, yes. Well, we were, um, we were living in Cyprus at the time and my mum came to the UK to see her dad. He hadn't been very well. And this is back when Woolworths existed. Oh, wow. Been- the pick a mix. Remember those days? <laughs> yeah, those are the days. No, the kids don't, know, kids don't know what they're missing. And yeah, she came back with like CDs from Craig David and Jennifer Lopez. And I remember having Britney Spears and Billy Piper on repeat <laughs> piper's cool i like and what was she doing with lawrence fox goodness listen billy you're probably listening to this you're probably not but even if you are yeah what what we what happened what's happened to him i'm sorry i just need to say that i'm sorry uh you were saying rosie what else have you got on your playlist yeah so i like i swing between that but when i'm when i'm writing i like to listen to jazz okay Okay, yeah, that, 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 um... So it's an eclectic mix. Okay, that is an eclectic mix. When I, when I, <laughs> I listen to, like, Cleopatra and, like, uh, you know, Top Loader and, 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 and anything 90s, early 2000s, that's a very nostalgic time. I didn't, I was yeah. quite young at the time during that period, but it's just, life was so much simple. Like, you'd come <laughs> over and you'd watch, like, Rush Hour, you know, yeah. and things like that, and Ready, Steady, Cook. Uh, and you know Keenan and Keller were on TV and things like that. Those are the yeah. good, those are innocent days. I think uh, <laughs> those are really really good times. No, no, Rose, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on Anti Small Talk. Rosie, do you have a blog? Where can our uh, where can our uh, listeners find you? Blog, website, Instagram, plug as you uh, as you wish. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at edufeminist. Um, my presence is really quite low key. If you want to find me on Instagram. It's Rosie's Feminist PhD, where I'm really kind of logging, cataloging, archiving the feminist content that I'm going to be looking at in my research. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter is really the place where I'm responding and engaging. Instagram is definitely an archiving project. But by all means, please come and join me. Contribute. I'd be more than happy to see you there. 
No, absolutely. Everyone listening, this is a fantastic educator, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and just a very genuine person. We use the word kindness a lot today. When I first had uh, struck up a conversation, I thought there's someone we need to have on the podcast and a voice that deserves to be elevated in education in our massive echo chamber. You know, we've got to try try and provide our you know our authentic voice and opportunity to have a seat at the table. But honestly, it's been absolutely incredible, Rosie, and I'm almost certain it's going to happen again at some stage when your yeah. PhD ready to launch. You know, and anti-small talks hitting like millions and millions of views we can have you back on there absolutely i would really love that no thank you so much for your time though you too thank you thank you hello everyone this is shweb khan here at anti-small talk and today is our ninth episode in our heroes without capes voices from within the classroom podcast series over the past six or seven eight weeks We've been talking to our nation's educators about their views on education, getting understanding of their stories, things they love, things they don't necessarily love, things they found challenging during the course of this global pandemic. Today I'm delighted to announce we have the wonderful Rosie Georgiou, who tweets at EduFeminist, talking to us about her experiences, her inspirations and her incredible PhD work. Hello Rosie and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's really, really exciting. Um, I think I come across your Twitter handle at one stage. I thought, who is Edu Feminist? And I've got to have this <laughs> on some stage. So uh, that's our first question, actually, okay? Who is the Edu Feminist? Okay, um, well, so I guess if I go by the identity on the Twitter handle, that is my teaching Twitter. Um, and they're the two things that are really important to me, education and feminism. Um, and for a while, I think that I thought they were separate. Um, so my original handle ne- didn't have anything to do with my feminism or my politics. And it was originally Rosie Outlook 305. Mm. So when I first started as a trainee, I was really excited about everything. And I felt that I had quite a rosy outlook on education. Um, and as time went on and I've gone on and done things like my master's and now my PhD, I've realized how important my feminism actually is to me as a person and to my identity in general. So that's why my Twitter handle is edufeminist because I'm an educator and I'm a feminist and I think they are really the two core strands of my identity. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's really cool because I'd consider myself as a feminist, not necessarily an active one, but uh, I'm just gonna sound like a really strange question. I cut off topic, okay? Um, out of the three, like there's different strands of feminism, okay? Is there one in particular that you prefer or would generally associate yourself more than others? Or do you think as a general thing that you just want to endorse? Do you mean the, like the three waves of feminism? Yes, yes. Okay, I, do you know what? This is one of my favourite questions because we're actually in the fourth wave. We are actually in the fourth wave. The whole social media technical, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're actually in the fourth wave. And so I consider myself a fourth wave feminist. Um, One of my favourite things about fourth wave feminism is that it is not happy with the work that the previous three waves have done. So women have achieved amazing things. We've got the vote. Um, You know, women are working and we're working towards closing the gender pay gap and women that are having children are campaigning for flexible work. So there are lots of brilliant things that have happened But there are some things that fourth wave feminism really points the finger at previous waves and says, that's not good enough. So one of the key facets is that it's intersectional um, and that feminism until the 90s 
really did not represent enough women. It was only serving a particular demographic. So third wave and fourth wave feminism are really campaigning for intersectional feminism and equality across all kinds of people from all walks of life. So that's why I identify as a fourth waver, because I think although we've achieved great things, there's a lot more to be done, um, particularly in representing lots of different kinds of women and femininity and also campaigning for men and masculinity, because feminism doesn't just serve women. And I think it's really important that we remember that there are lots of issues with toxic masculinity. Absolutely. That really don't get spoken about enough in public forums and feminists are doing the work for men. Um, and I think that that's something that's important as well. No, you're absolutely correct. And I think you're right. I think the sentiment I always get with fourth wave feminists is that progress kind of, it needs to carry on. It's not, it's, it's yeah. an endless uh, uh, model towards a movement and a vehicle towards social change. And it's going to happen through you know, innovating, changing and adopting that intersectional design. You're absolutely right. I was watching was it Ross Kemp on gangs or something and he was in somewhere like Colombia and there was um, you know uh, ladies there working there in the fields uh, um, picking um, I think it was coffee I think they were picking and uh, it, it played in the back of my mind thinking that we've had great success here in the UK but that level of success for women across you know the countries women of color you know uh, mm. even our um, LGBTQ plus community how we can adapt that in there it's really really important that we branch out and we bring everyone and I think it really boils down to the idea of it's equality for everyone or it's equality for no one so it's yeah. uh, also recognizing privilege I think this is what 2020 has kind of been about leading 2021 recognizing our privileges as you know white people Asian people uh, even with our genders as well so all these sort of like you know, strands of inequality or equality kind of need to be crossed over first to, to tear apart social structures and, and say, yeah, things are not fair for you because of this, this and this, not just because of one characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think my favourite thing, probably if I had to sum up fourth wave feminism, I would say it's not enough. Mm. Like, I think that's how fourth wave feminists feel. I mean, I know I'm speaking for a really big group here. <laughs> uh, it's definitely how I feel. The, yeah, this is great, but it's not enough. And I think that it taps into lots of the things that we've seen in 2020 as well, like- Racism, stuff like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need to educate yourself. You need to be aware of your own privilege and in being aware of your own privileges, you need to be aware of the fact that other people do not have that. So having your eyes open, being aware that that is not enough. Your own lived experience being the only lens that you see the world through is not enough. So yeah, I think um, the other thing I love is that it's online. Um, I love the art being made. I think it's fantastic. It's all postmodern. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Abstract art. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great. And it's, you know, I mean, platforms like Instagram have really taken a turn in the sense that well, I don't know about you, but when I first got my Instagram account, I was taking photos of my food and like. I didn't, the, get, that far. Uh, I didn't get that far. No. Uh, no, no, I didn't know. The sunset, you know, like my. I've got a few, them, yeah. I've got a few sunset photos. Yeah, yeah. I think some yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, it was this autobiographical platform, right? Where you were sharing your life with your loved ones and sometimes a wider platform. Whereas now, when you, or maybe because I. I'm part of a feminist echo chamber on there. So I do need to be mindful of that. But when I log onto that platform, I see a lot of content that's been made particularly for the platform. So 
some amazing activism by body positive influencers and illustrators and content creators. People are making digital activist content in the form of artwork and clips and sounds and podcasts and putting stuff up on Instagram as a way of sharing. And I think that kind of that aspect of it can go viral, that potential, the potential something to go viral, I think is one of the things that's so exciting about the movement. Because when something goes and all of a sudden that engagement increases and your audience explodes mm. and you're reaching people that otherwise you wouldn't reach and then more traditional forms of media start to become engaged in the activism, I think that's when it gets really exciting. I'll never forget Oprah's Me Too speech, mm. Golden Globes. Yes, yes, I remember that, yes, yes. That was such an amazing moment in history because not only was the speech itself powerful, the art that came from that, the posters, the photos of her, the captions, um, all of the hashtags that come with it as a way of archiving the process. Mm. I think that's something that I'm also really interested in is how do we archive the content that we've made that is part of our digital activism? Because mm. once it's published, provided you don't delete it, it's there forever. Yeah. I mean, and arguably even once it's been deleted, it's there forever. But mm. I'm not necessarily tech savvy enough to kind of work around that limitation mm. but yeah so that that sense of sharing content that is activist the way in which it's shared and the potential for really big engagement because of the nature of the movement and how it spreads so quickly mm. I just love it I think it's so exciting no you're right it becomes a world of its own doesn't it which is really cool that's what I always find yeah absolutely absolutely even like when I'm blogging and stuff and even podcasting you see people in like I don't know Afghanistan listening to you you're thinking wow you know how did it get there it's insane yeah. and, you know, it's reached someone else and the, the global outreach of it's enormous as well well it's unlimited potential in that respect once you release something if it resonates it's got unlimited potential and I think you realise with that activism that actually you represent people and that's really important because what we're noticing about social media is that you are able to represent people that on traditional forms of media may feel that they are unrepresented. Yep. So therefore social media creates this platform for the minorities the marginalized voices right definitely, um, definitely. that's really cool because all of a sudden it's like a place where you find your tribe mm. and people think like you do and share your ideas there's so much about that that's brilliant i mean of course there there are limitations with everything Every, mm. everything has a danger but um i think yeah that's why fourth wave feminism excites me so much because it's moved from the page onto what I would consider more of a platform. Yep, yep um, absolutely. And it brings with it this whole sort of sense of performance and theatre. And I don't think that feminism was particularly theatrical before now. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that there are people who are taking photographs and they're dressing up um, or dressing down and you've got these body positive influencers who are posing naked, who are campaigning for the fact that they should be able to do that because slimmer people were doing it, not having their content removed, but um, well, essentially fatter people that have put naked photos up, have had their content removed. And then there's been activism around that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's amazing. It's a really reactive movement, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's needed at a time where we need, do need social change and where, you know, marginalized voices are not being heard. It's uh 
it's fascinating. Something I definitely need to be, you know, getting into more and understanding more because if what, like, I think me and Carl Pupe talked about Action Hero Teacher. Shout out to Action Hero Teacher. I know you're going to be listening to this, but me and him talked about if we put our name to a, a particular flag and we say we're going to be inclusion, diversity, we do talk about all strands of that. We can't simply mm. include people. So I've been trying to educate myself more and more on transphobia because a lot of my friends have said to me, Shreve, I've never heard anyone been transphobic. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's definitely out there in the public domain and, and the trans community do feel very targeted. So educating using the right, you know, pronouns and nouns and, you know, addressing people with they and, and asking them, you know, what they feel comfortable with, asking them about. And in, 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 a, in a sincere and compassionate way, not in a transactional way, it's, it's a learning curve and a process. And I think we're going to do that by having these conversations. Do you know what? I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One, I don't think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not dismissing a big issue, but what I mean is, hello, my name's Rosie. My pronouns are she, her. What's your name and what are your pronouns? I don't think it has to be a particularly difficult conversation to have. I think if you introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, I, that's a really comfortable way of doing it. And it normalizes it. I have my pronouns on my email sign off at work and on my email sign off on my personal email and on my Twitter handle. Um, I actually think it's really important. So yeah, I do think that, I mean, my brother is gay. So we have conversations about gender, the importance of your identity, feeling seen for who you are, being accepted and loved for who you are, not being dismissed or invisible. Um, So I have a lot to thank him for in the sense that I'm interested in these things as a feminist anyway. I do a lot of reading around gender and pronouns um so maybe i have a natural bias towards that mm. but yeah, i also have those conversations at home with my family but yeah so I, I don't think it should be difficult hello my name's rosie i go by she her what's your name and we're teaching children Absolutely. with children who are growing up mm. in a world where this is more important than ever before mm. i have i've taught children that are tra- transitioning mm. And they need to feel that they're seen and represented, even though I myself am not transitioning and at the, don't have any plans to in the future. Um, you know, if that doesn't change, we'll find out. But so I, yeah, I make it, I make it my business to make sure that all children feel that in one way or another, they're represented and respected by me. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the way forward, you know that. And I think that's why we struck up such a uh, a good conversation to start with. I think we just zoomed before and it lasts like two hours and it was it's <laughs> a general chit chat about inclusion. I can see, you know, how passionate you are about it. Um, but linking into this fourth wave feminism, Rosie, okay. So in your bio, okay, we spoke about okay, you're doing a PhD at the Montford, okay? Um yeah. okay. Can you like shed some light on that? Because I know you're very passionate about the work that you're doing, okay? And it's very particular. Like, I've never heard of anything like this before so it's unique okay would you want to shed some light on that for us please <laughs> yeah uh, yeah I'm more than happy to do that so I am in my first year of my PhD I wrote my proposal up in the summer um, and because I'm in my first year I'm still very much in the stages of having the project completely approved by the university I'll have my first review in January um, but the proposal at the minute outlines the following so i will be tracing the shifts in feminist politics 
and considering the ways in which Chiclet responded to these concerns, if at all, in the 90s. Um, some research has been done on that before. So my original contribution to knowledge will be identifying those gaps with contemporary Chiclet, if it still exists, because there are, Chiclet has been declared dead on many occasions. Um, and then taking all of the findings, so that will form my literature review and the critical component of my research, taking all of the findings as to the relationship between feminist politics and chiclet, and then filling that gap with my own creative writing. So the, the proposal essentially outlines that I will pioneer a new feminist chiclet genre which doesn't exist at the moment. That's ambitious, but really cool, actually, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but really cool. When I say it out loud, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I'm writing, the words come. Yeah. Uh, but when I, re you know, when I speak the words out loud and it goes from being something in my head to something real that I share with other people, it is, yeah, a very ambitious project and quite scary. But somebody has to do it. Absolutely, that's that's the truth. That's the truth thing. Before we started, like to our listeners, before we started this conversation, myself and Rosie were talking about being the first one to say things, and sometimes the onus is on us. Sometimes you've got to grab the bull by the horns, don't you, and say, Do you know what? I need to say this. Now I've got an opportunity to say I'm gonna say it, or I need to research this, and it needs to be something in yeah. the public domain. So if you're passionate about it, absolutely, yeah. I think it's gonna be incredible, you know that. And I obviously I'll follow your journey as well along the way, which would be really, really cool as well. So yeah. Um so Rosie, okay, we've got some more questions here for you, okay? Um yeah. let's go for some like general teacher questions, okay, just to get to know you a bit better, okay? So if we walked into your classroom right now, let's say you're teaching at yeah, because any no one teaches at seven o'clock. I'm just saying, okay, uh, if let's say we walked into your classroom a normal day, what would we expect to typically see from your English classroom? Yeah, still, yes. I'm an English teacher. Um, I teach year 11, 12 and 13 because I'm part time to allow me to do my studying. So you will see a very focused exam class. Um, so I teach the exam texts to the GCSE groups. I think I'm a, I'm a firm but fair teacher. Um, I like a calm, focused room. I have very clear routines um, and I like to provide structure for my students. It comes from really feeling that structure is one of the things that my kids need from me. So the schools that I've taught in, for the most part, um, with the exception of a couple of years, serve largely deprived backgrounds. Um, so I have a lot of underprivileged students and sometimes home life can be very chaotic. So what I try to do is to create a really safe, structured environment for my kids so that they come in, they know exactly what to expect, um, to be consistent. So that's one of the things that I take very seriously. No, routines routines for learning are very, very important because you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know if there are any consistency at home at all. So if you're the only consistent person in their life, dare I say, especially in these deprived schools, I went to, I work myself in a very deprived school as well. If they don't have that level of consistency at home, they can get it at school. And having those clear expectations routines are really, really important. In terms of behavior management, um, what works for you? Because I know people try loads of different things. Do, uh, is there anything that particularly works for you? People do countdown, people do all sorts of different things. Okay, is there anything that you found particularly good? Because I need some tips because I've got some difficult classes. I'm not lying. This is <laughs> um, well, the, the behavior routines I've used, they have 
they've depended on the school that I'm in and the culture of the school. At the, at the moment, the school that I'm in has um, a really big focus on every teacher being consistent with school policy. So some of the policies that we use are countdown five, four, three, two, one. Students respond really well to it because all teachers are using it. Um, so I make sure that I use what other teachers are using because it's really effective in that school. One of the things that I would say is a behavior tool that lots of people don't talk about is marking the books. Um, I know my kids inside out and mark their books. Um, I'm really hot on that. Not everybody is and marking is quite unfashionable at the moment. It's fallen out of fashion. Um, and I, I, hate so I, wear... I, hate to, I hate it to be honest with you. I hate marking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's boring. Do you but... know what? I realised how powerful marking was in my training year because I was doing Teach First. I had a year 11 group. They were set to and I think we'd got to the October half term and I hadn't looked at the books I was busy surviving yeah. I was busy surviving and um one day one of the students said to me miss are you ever going to look at our books and I had a bit of a reality check yeah. because my mentor then said we really need to look at the books um and I once I started to mark their work and I knew what their strengths were, and I learned the students from their work, I, I transformed as a teacher. Um, I was then marking that year 11 group's work every week. So they would do exam practice on a Friday period five because English was timetabled in at Friday period five. I think that is a terrible timetabling mistake. And if anybody that timetables is listening, I would advise that core subjects are never timetabled in on a Friday period five, I would get year 11 to do PE or an option subject. I agree. <laughs> or food, tech or art. Yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So I had a Friday period five with my set two year 11 and I gave them exam practice every week. Um, they were a big group. There were 32 of them. And I will be honest and say that marking their work at first was difficult. Mm. I got very quick at it. Um, so yeah, the long answer to your question is I do mark as a behavior management tool mm. because I know the students really well. I know what they're good at. It allows me to have personal conversations with them. Um, I'm not advocating for a ridiculous teacher workload. I don't believe in that at all, but I think marking where it matters yeah. and that's what's important. Yeah. Marking where it matters is key. And for me, exam groups are really, really important. And those students went on to make incredible progress. I had a boy in that group. They were all boys. But this particular boy was working an E when I first marked his work in the October. And um, I wasn't sure of my marking. So I asked the head of English to moderate me. And she said, no, he's working at an E grade. Anyway, the end of the year, he came out with two Bs. That's incredible. Mom bought me a massive bottle of perfume and a bottle of wine. Oh, that's incredible. That's really, really yeah, cool. I did it, but it was nice. Mm. So, yeah, I think, and I always do that with my exam groups. I like to know them really well. Mm. I think right. knowing how they write, I teach sociology and RE, so understanding how they analyse text and use their sources as well is really, really important. Um, it's very, I think the issue I think teachers find in marking is, especially when it's purposeless, and we do get purposeless marking at times where, you know, you, there's a school that I worked at where you'd have a different color pen for each year group. Mm. And you'd, you'd stick in this sheet and this colored sheet. And it's not going to empirical 
data behind it or reasoning behind it. It's not been mandated or validated everywhere. So anywhere, any, any other country, any other school. So it can be add to workload, but if you're with the key exam groups, like I teach a key exam group as well, having that dialogue with their work is important. You get to know them. And I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's got to have a purpose. It's got to be meaningful and impactful on progress. Otherwise, we're doing it for the sake of it. And it shouldn't be, the, and it shouldn't be like teaching for the sake of marking as well. It should be teaching for the sake of teaching and assessing to assess for progress that sort of thing i don't think anything in teaching should be for the sake of anything mm. if it is not in the best interest of the kids mm. that are in front of you you shouldn't be doing it that's how mm. i feel i think everything should be really purposeful and i think if something is really purposeful then you get buy-in mm. i don't think it's hard to get buy-in from teachers because teachers want the kids to do well i think when you reach those obstacles is where teachers as professionals are starting to question but why are we doing this mm. is this additional workload for the sake of workload and for busy work or is it in the best interest of the kids because all of the teachers that i know um i know some really respectable professionals always want to do what's right by the kids mm. you know i've worked with people that would go in on a saturday morning every week for months um unpaid without question because it was the only way to get, this is back when we did coursework, it was mm. the only way to get those kids over the line. It was not requested by the school. It wasn't even encouraged by the school, but that particular teacher had a group that really needed extra intervention, no additional time to do it, rang parents and said, I really want to support your child. I'm going to come in on Saturday between nine and 12, and I'm going to do it from December through till February. Um, this is time that I'm willing to give please send your son and the kids responded really well to it the workload shouldn't have been so that she had to do that mm. and i acknowledge that and i'm not promoting it but what i'm saying is all of the teachers that i've worked with and especially the ones that i've respected they always want to do right by the kids and getting buy-in on that has never been hard in my experience mm. the thing that starts to get resistance where teachers are saying i'm not convinced that that strategy is going to work or be effective or is actually in the best interest of the kids that's when teachers start to question things absolutely absolutely and people start pulling in different directions i think uh, when i worked in schools as well and we've had you know marking policies introduced i like to know where they've come from i like to know you know where has it been successful can we go to this school or this institution can we see best practice and if it's not demonstrated by senior leaders to us how do we know what is best best practice so um and even the whole notion of toxic, you know, productivity, people being productive, making displays simply because they've got time to make a display or they've got to take an objective off for the day. I like to think that if I've taught my lessons to a, a, a respectable level, to a respectable level, and I've kept my respect intact as well while teaching those lessons as well, I like to think I've done okay. But I think there's this notion that we have to look busy all the time as teachers, which, again, leads to things like burnout and people becoming more and more disillusioned what we're doing and you know you can see our retention and recruitment figures you know the number of teachers that have left the profession in the past i think it was forty thousand. i think in 2019 i can't imagine what's going to be like post pandemic but um we've got to somehow find a, a middle ground that works that's you know aid student progress also um you know, allows teachers to have some form of work-life balance it shouldn't be the case they have to have, have a day off or you know, go part-time simply to have a work-life balance. Teaching should fit around our lives. That's what I think anyway. 
No, I agree with you completely. I think we've got the well-being paradox, haven't we? Well-being is at the forefront of the teaching agenda. But if you speak to, to some teachers, at least, not everybody feels very well. Um, and ultimately, if you are in a good or outstanding school, then you should feel well in the sense that you should feel supported. Your senior leaders um, should have structures and systems in place that allow for that balance to exist because it's a profession and we're professionals, but we don't exist just as professionals. We exist as human beings. Mm -hmm. So once we go home, there needs to be space for home life. There needs to be space for relationships and for exercise mm. and overall health and well-being because your purpose on the air, while one of them might be to educate, there is more to life than that. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think a lot of teachers in particular I speak to, particularly the ones who've got their own families, they're able to create a bit more of a work-life balance, but it's the dare I say, you know, the young single ones, the, the newbies, the young ones who are fresh into the teaching profession, they, they are spending <laughs> virtually every hour. I think over the summer, I put a tweet out about when I did my NQT year, four years ago, um, I spent the entire summer in the school marking and planning, you know, getting things ready, um, doing displays, painting classroom walls, laying down floor tiles. By the time October half term came, I was burnt out. I was finished. And right. if I look back at it now, did I need to do those things? Yeah, I had the most beautiful looking classroom, but was I well at the end of it? No, if anything, you know, it, it became a job and not a vocation. And I think so many of us are keen to avoid it becoming a, becoming a job and staying as a vocation. The only way we can do that is having that separation between the spheres. Yeah, I think so. If you're going to be a teacher, you have to love it. Mm. You have to love it because you are there working with young people um, you know, depending on your subject, I see some of my classes four or five times a week and you are a key figure in those kids' lives. You need to be positive and healthy and they need to see that you are, yes, you're a teacher, you're there, you're delivering curriculum, you're sharing knowledge with them, but you're also a role model of what an adult looks like. Absolutely. You are a role model of what an adult looks like and that is a serious responsibility. You are there to model what adult health looks like, what adult well-being looks like, what adult success looks like, and happiness, especially if you are teaching children who come from home lives where some of their adults don't do that successfully. Yep. Those things are really important. There is an alternative to the life that you have, and education is the key. And I, I, I feel like a walking cliche whenever I say that. I really do. <laughs> I really do. Um, I do think education is the key. I really, <laughs> I really do. I mean, look, I'm back at uni. How many times have I been? I can't remember. Um, fourth or fifth time now. Um, but I've, for me personally, education is the key to happiness and overall well-being and health. Now I know that is not it's not completely true for everybody. Not everybody is academic. However, there are certain qualifications. And as an English teacher, I feel this particularly strongly that unlock the world to you. If you've got your English GCSE, the world opens you, you know, opens up to you. It opens its arms to you. You want to go and do a plumbing course at college? Have you got your pass in English? Cool. 
come in have you not got your past in english sorry you've got to do that first so i feel that education is the key and i know that i teach a core subject and i feel massive sense of responsibility because of that um i think it's hugely hugely important literacy generally is hugely important mm. um yeah, it started off with teacher well-being, the fact that we're role models. To me, getting on my soapbox and talking about well, wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, to get, to get to know you as an educator and, and get a real flavour of sort of like the background that you come from and everything and your perspective on things. Teacher well-being is a very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. So, uh, not too long ago, I won, or a couple of years ago, I won colleague of the term. I kept voting mm. for myself. That's how I won it. I'm not gonna lie to you. I continued to vote for myself, and I, I did win it. And you know, I'm a member of staff and someone gave me a bottle of Chardonnay and uh, I was very confused. I was thinking, you know what, maybe I'd win like a Rolls Royce. So I, was being, I thought, you know, something really nice I'd win. And it's a bottle of wine. I was like, All right, fair enough, you know, I, I can't drink it. So I just gave it to one of the cleaners. But even that consciousness, that cultural sensitivity, knowing your staff, knowing that if, I, if we get something for well-being, it needs to be you know, representative. It needs to be something that everyone yeah. can access and have. I remember um, one of our members of staff, he was in a wheelchair it's a good two or three years ago and he won colleague of the term or colleague of the year whatever it was and his um he couldn't access the hall because there wasn't wheelchair access into the hall so he won it he stood in the fire exit which i thought was a, a real like um uh, a damning indictment of where the school was at the time in terms of its inclusion diversity etc and, and i always remember thinking back how must he have felt how must how, how demoralized must he have felt the fact that he couldn't access the main hall of the school or access wasn't made available to him? Surely that's better than winning a bottle of wine. That's my opinion anyway. So I think pitching it at people in a sensitive way is really important. So well-being is not a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. It's also, it's not a bottle of wine mm. and it's not a spa afternoon and it's not arts and crafts on an inset day. Mm. It is not a plaster for all of the cuts that you've picked up in the term it's doing what you can to prevent the cuts and it's doing what you can to protect your colleagues and help your colleagues and sometimes teacher well-being is walking in to the english office or to the staff room on a really tough day and somebody saying to you you know what you look like you're having a difficult day what can i do to help right now yeah. i was talking to a friend last night we teach at different schools and um she's an un qualified English teacher doing her English um, degree because she wants to become a qualified English teacher wow. which I think is the most amazing thing in the world right so she's an unqualified English teacher unqualified scale still pretty much a full timetable she is a phenomenal woman um, she's doing her English degree in her spare time she had a an assignment due and she had felt that the workload had been unsustainable I mean Things are difficult for qualified teachers at the moment. She's unqualified and doing an undergraduate degree and she's a mum. So she has a lot on her plate. Yeah. She had an assignment due at noon and she hadn't finished. And one of her colleagues took a look at her and said, you know, you, you're not looking good today. What's up and can I help? And between themselves, using their free lessons, colleagues covered for her so that she could finish her assignment that's where it should be and that i think that is teacher well-being stepping in and protecting each other and helping each other when it really matters if the marking workload is too much sometimes leadership saying 
you have a particularly heavy marking workload, we're going to give you an afternoon off this week to help with your marking workload or you're not going to be put into invigilate for the exam so that you can use that time to do your marking. Um, I've been really fortunate to work in schools where those systems have been put in place and I think that I'm, I'm lucky that I've seen it because if you haven't seen things that have been put in place to protect people and their well-being, sometimes you get tunnel vision and you feel like this is really hard and I can't see a way out. Mm. Um, so when somebody puts their hand out to you and says, let me help you, I think that's it for me anyway. The well-being is let me help you. It is, absolutely. Job. It can be long hours um, and sometimes it can be thankless, particularly with the attacking narrative in the general media. That can be really hard when you've had a really tough day at school and you see in the papers teachers are being branded as lazy and they don't work hard enough and they're overpaid and they were on full pay throughout lockdown and not working those narratives can be very they can be very difficult um, to stomach so when your colleagues say let me help you that that i think is what well-being is in my experience mm. No, I totally agree with you. I def definitely think it's people stepping in when they realise a crisis is happening or before a crisis. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think it, it, a lot of that really manifests top down from senior leadership who take well-being seriously and don't make it a one-off event. Um, um, I think what's happened is the, the idea itself became a hashtag really quickly and then mm. everything became about teacher well-being. So people were, you know, having curry nights together and that was well-being and they were doing, you know, after school ping pong and things like that or you know and, and basketball and netball and that would become the whole well-being sort of veneer that everyone operated by i think changing that gaze and realizing that we have got a workload problem it's very serious the workload problem in education full stop is very serious you know my own workload like i said to you before we started as well i'm just trying to cope with my lessons and nothing else whatever goes on in the world i pick you up at 4 30 when i leave the building before that whilst i'm there from 7 30 to 4 30 I just focus on my job that day, nothing more and nothing less. Doing my duties, doing my registers, you know, my safeguarding, everything else we do around there, just the job that we do ourselves. So I think you're right, well-being needs to be, you know, embedded into day-to-day -day interactions as well. And I think we talk about kindness as well and how it's been kind of like, you know, it's kind of full circle how kindness has existed in Britain. So when Caroline Flack passed away and kindness became mm. the, the ultimate thing, you know, if you could be anything in the world, be kind. And you know, people were throwing kindness around like confetti, weren't they, at one stage in January? You know, come, you know, December now, we're, you know, approaching, you know, how many deaths from COVID and, and the way teachers are being treated as well. It's a, it's a dark time. If anything, you know, we should be reverting back to that January sort of like enthusiasm about kindness and re-embedding into our interactions. I agree with you. I do agree with you, but I do not think kindness should be radical. Mm. I do not think kindness should be radical. Uh, for me, it is a basic expectation yes. that human interactions are going to be kind. I want my colleagues to be kind. I want to be kind to my colleagues and I want my children, my students, I want them to see that I'm kind and I'm kind to them and that there is a culture of kindness, that it is normal. You know, this idea, this be kind, being a hashtag on the internet that suggests that being kind is somehow radical, that that's some kind of activism in itself. 
that's wrong. That is wrong that we need that. That if there is a serious imbalance if we need to remind each other to be kind. I mean, I feel like that's really callous me saying that. I don't mean to be callous. I just, I'm disappointed. I am disappointed that we have to promote it like that on social media, that it has to trend on Twitter and Instagram, that people die um, at like this, this altar so that there's, there's this shared collective responsibility for kindness. I agree with you that that really, that is the foundation, isn't it? Be kind, let me help you. What can I do for you? I've got your back. We're professionals together. We're a unit. Yep. I think that sense of unity is really important as well, where you have any kind of really deep-seated division. There are problems and there are tensions. Um, that being a team is so important for, for us as professionals, but also for the children. When I've worked on teams where the staff are, they're, you know, they're, they're gelled and they move together. Um, and there's that sense of cohesion and consistency The the kids respect all of the professionals in the same way. And they behave in the same way where the children feel that there is a division or that there are teachers that don't support other teachers they can smell it they know they know mm -hmm. and that's when you start to get problems with behavior as well because there's a lack of consistency and there's this sense that the, the teachers are not supporting one another mm -hmm. and the student body becomes aware of it and it becomes part of the fabric of the school. And I think from the things that I've seen in my very short teaching career of um, seven going on to eight years, I think that's where you get your biggest problems and trying to shift that on the staff body takes real, real skill and hard work and very experienced leaders. I've seen it done once um, in one of the four schools that I've worked in and trying to shift the culture of a school, extremely difficult once the damage has been done. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you're right, what you say about children picking up on things, you know, uh, children see through BS quite well, actually, to be fair, you know. <laughs> No, they these 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 young puppies, man. They know what's real. They know what's fake. And you know, they often pull me over. They go, "Can't, don't say it like that." I'm like, right, "Cool, fine. I change how I speak and whatnot. I change the sort of language I use." But they are so black and white, and it's the small things. I think me and Oliver uh, Oliver Wright spoke about Oliver SLT. You know, I know he's I know he's listening. He always listens to the podcast as well. He spoke spoke about people leaving a tray of glues in your glue sticks in your classroom. The way they're left, they could be tossed onto a table or gently placed with a smile. Children pick up on that and they know I've worked in an environment where my line manager used to um, very openly give me very uh, demeaning looks and the children used to pick up on that. It's, oh, why, why is she looking at you like that? I'm like, oh, no, no, no problem. We're cool. But they knew something was up. And eventually, by the time I actually spoke to this person, the rapport had kind of already been broken and lost. We lost it. You know, a lot was lost in translation with that. But you're right. Kindness doesn't need to be a radical out there, you know, uh, populist thing. If you can't be kind to someone, leave them alone. 
wouldn't that just be fine? You know, just, yeah. I think it kind of links to what we're talking about, trauma dumping. I know we started talking about that, but it kind of links yeah. to... So, yeah. Uh, so, Rosie, okay, we've got a couple more questions here for you, okay? I'm just conscious of time as well. Um, what has been your proudest moment as a teacher so far? Oh, I, th- I thought... If you can choose one. <laughs> my, my answer's really cheesy. Um, I just, I'm proud every day. I'm proud every day for different reasons. Um, I'm proud when I mark a piece of work and a student has made brilliant progress or they've listened to some of the feedback they were given. Um, I think like feelings of immense pride in myself as a teacher are usually when a child picks English at A-level because then it's a choice. And that, that for me, I feel like I've won because up until the end of GCSE, English is compulsory. Mm. And when a child chooses English and they've been in my class, I feel like a winner. Um, And yeah, teaching A-level, I I love it. It's one of my, the highlights of my week. Um, If a child then goes on to do English at university, you can bet I'm gonna cry. Um, <laughs> when children tell me or young adults tell me in my A-level class they've applied to do English at uni I actually get a bit teary because I feel like I have done my job I feel like I have delivered the curriculum in such a way that they've been engaged and that they've loved it um, so yeah and on you know results days because not because of what the grade stands for, but because the fact that it's a passport onto the next stage. If you've got your pass and you're going to go on to be a mechanic and that's your dream and you needed English to get there and I helped you get there, I feel so good about that, you know? So if I've opened doors, I'm proud. Um, That's when I feel like I'm, I was put on the earth to do this and I've done it. And in one way or another, I've supported you to go and change the world in your your own way and yeah so that's what i see my role as ultimately you're right absolutely we're here to raise you know the next generation of citizens to be socially aware you know conscious of our you know our the inequalities of our society you know aware of the damage of the climate you know small things like that just being sensible respectable citizens citizens for our society and we do that through our interactions with them and like you say we model behaviors you know what yeah. they see from us is you know what they will probably go out and dem- you know model it themselves in the future you, sometimes you know it can be one class i was very fortunate in my nqt i had one class who it just clicked from the moment i walked in there it, and they were all boys and it was like a they used to talk about football for half an hour, and then we teach for half an hour, that sort of thing. We used to have two hour lessons together, back to back. It was RE, mm. and some class it just clicks. And I was just constantly proud of walking in there and seeing how respectful they were to each other, not just yeah. to me. They'd hand each other books out. This is a class who'd put each other in the headlocks at the beginning of the year. <laughs> Towards the end of the year, they were opening doors for one another. And there was such a sense of kindness in the classroom and that just come from interactions that we had with them. And you're right. I think, you know, the small things that we do, you know, they, they have an impact. And, you know, we as teachers, we should be proud of going into work every single day. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be a blessing. No, there's so much that's lovely about it. You know, it's small things like sometimes when you're in your classroom and you see the kids arriving in the morning and somebody drops a bit of litter and then they pick it up. I feel proud because nobody is looking and 
one of my favorite things is um you know people say the definition of integrity is what you do when no one's watching yes yes i've had that quote i feel like if my students have integrity and they don't know i've seen it but they've shown a kindness mm. or they've done the right thing whether that's protecting the planet or looking after a friend or if my students have integrity i that is actually the most important thing for me that is the most important thing for me if my students are good human beings and i had a part to play in that um i would go as far as to say that's more important than any qualification that i can teach them no. you can go back and you can do the gcses again not that i want you to and it will be hard for you mm. but if you are a good human being and people are kind to you and you are kind to them and you have support you can go on to do anything if you are an abhorrent person and nobody wants you to do well and you don't have the support good luck getting anywhere mm. so no you're absolutely right you're absolutely right so they it's about fostering that sort of culture within your classroom to say not only that they can achieve but also you're looking out for the more holistic pastoral side to them as well, rather than just, you know, they come in, take a registry, start teaching. You want to know how they are. You want to know how they're doing as well as what they're doing as well. Yeah, look, they are the future leaders. Mm. They are the future leaders. One of us is teaching the next prime minister. Hopefully, we yeah. Ho hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we don't know who is, but someone is. Someone's teaching the next prime minister. Someone's teaching a brilliant surgeon or somebody who's going to go on to be a professor at a university. Somebody's teaching a generation of teachers mm. and they're going to go on to share their values. Um, I think that responsibility cannot be underplayed. Mm. We are integral figures in that respect. Mm. We are role models. We are there every day. Um, come rain or shine during the good the bad and the ugly mm. we're there and the students see us so if they remember that you were kind and that you tried your best and that you made them feel safe and secure and they learned when they were with you that's that's what it's all about isn't it and there's a special kind of magic when you have those days and those lessons where all of those components are there it's magical there's nothing like it no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, really brings me back to my NQT, actually. Yeah. We used to have, uh, particularly in that year, where because it started off such a difficult class, so challenging with their behavior, and it took a lot of time initially to start. It, click, it did click initially, straight away, but it took a lot of time to just embed the small things, the sort of like, you know, just classroom routines. And once you become a consistent figure in their lives, you can see how they, their behavior changed. They know what to expect, you know, and it's the lack of consistency they may have at home or in society full stop, especially with this pandemic, no one knows what's going on. School is there, it's our safe place as well as their safe place as well. Do you know, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I think that maybe my students might think I'm extreme, um, particularly when I take on a new year 10 class. By the time they get to year 11, they're so well trained, they already know. Mm. But with the year 10 group, I learned this from um, a teacher that taught my brother. So I, started to work at the school my brother was at when he was in year 13 so it was really interesting oh wow that must have been yeah that must have been something yeah, yeah they they knew who i was as a teacher because we were in the same borough um but my brother's a very different character to me i think it's fair to say that i don't think he would disagree at all okay um, he's not academic 
and the school were aware of that and they were trying to get him over the line with his A-levels and I am really quite academic and I like book smart um, and so we're very very different and when I got there somebody actually said to me I hope you're not going to be anything like your brother and um, (laughs) I said I hope it reassures you that I'm not Uh, and then I kind of had to work harder I felt to prove myself to the general staff body that we were not the same Mm. Um, but anyway that's an aside so I was I was working there and I've forgotten what I was saying what was the question um right I I met one of his history teachers and this guy is a legend at the school he has been there for so long he has taught sons fathers brothers cousins friends neighbors he's taught history to the entire community okay he's really well known um and I said to him you know like what's your secret and he said to me it's routines and one of the things that he does is he gets the kids to number the pages in their exercise books and to create a contents page at the front of the book. And I asked him to show me because I was completely fascinated by this. First time I'd ever heard it, he's Irish. And he said, look, I'm old school, but I promise you this works. So he showed me and he gets every child to number the pages of their exercise book and on the front there's a contents page. And the contents page includes date, the page number of the exercise book, the title of the work and um, I asked him to show me how it works and I loved it so much because I am a neat freak Uh, so now that's something that I do as part of the routines that I have in place so when the students come into the room first thing they do when they write down the title learning objective they check the page number and they fill out their contents page and it really helps with stuff like homework because when I say, can you please make sure your homework is in the contents page? I don't have to search for it anymore. I can check the contents page. My homework's on page 18. I find it and I can mark it really easily. Um, That's a really like genius, smart, old school hack. Yeah. Really smart. What yeah. I, don't think I just learned so much from this guy. And um, the wow. great thing was obviously like he taught my brother. So I had heard... I, I, like, I knew the myth before the man because my brother would come home and say, you won't believe what he did today. And um, I'd heard all of these outlandish stories about him. He is very eccentric. Um, and when he taught me that, I have done it ever since. And it's really funny because now all of my students who I have taught meet my incoming cohort will say, you know she'll get you to write down the page number on every page and some of them come in and they they almost look like scared and like oh are you going to get me to write down the page numbers in my book and I say yeah we're going to write down the page numbers in your book so I, I suppose it's like the legend continued but it is almost it's theatrical it's not necessarily a completely um important thing but it is one of the structures that I have and they know it. It's familiar. If I missed a lesson and they've got cover work, they've put pages 32 to 35 is cover work. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it allows this sense of, I know what's coming. The title and the learning objective are going to be on the board. The date's going to be on the board. She's going to give me three minutes to write those things down. 
and then I have to fill out my contents page and then we will begin. So it's just coming back to the idea of safety and routines. I do think they're really important. I think safety routines and relationships mm. are integral to yeah, successful student teacher relationships. And once you've got the relationship down and they feel safe with you, then they can learn. No, you're absolutely right. One thing I love about that routine, it's tried and tested. It's been passed on by generations. And the fact yeah. that you adapted it, it's, you've seen it. This is one thing I love about when teachers observe other teachers. You've seen what's worked in someone else's car. It's actually worked. You've seen it. You can now adapt it rather than it be something the school roll out as a policy. We're doing this and that's the end of it. If you've seen it physically working in demonstration and someone's made success out of it, you adapt it to your practice. You're like, damn, that was really good. And the legacy gets passed on and carried on and, and then it becomes a routine. So that, that's, how, that's, how we, that's how we teach. You know, we, we, you know, we model other people's practice in our own teaching. I pay homage to Mr. Lewis, who used to say, <laughs> comedy first, teaching second. And I've kind of operated that way, you know, Dan. You know, my motto is, you know, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And that's what he lived by as well. So it's really important that we, we, we can adapt. That's a really good smart hack. If you're listening, if you're an NQT listening, you know, uh, you should copyright that. I think you should copyright <laughs> textbooks yeah, content yeah. pages you know <laughs> it's a very smart idea actually i really do like that I, th that's what teaching is right you've got the mentor and the mentee i mean i was a qualified teacher at the point at which i moved to that school but i always feel that i'm learning from my colleagues whether they're more or less experienced than me but i have to say um i came into teaching at a time where we the retention crisis had kind of really taken hold of the profession and um more experienced members of staff were leaving um and i just felt that i was learning so much from them and uh, do you know what on the subject of kindness they are the kindest human beings on the planet some of them watched me fall over onto my backside and didn't laugh you know, I, cause I was so exhausted. My foot just went and I had a big box of books. They all skidded. Oh, wow. oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And my glasses came off my face and skidded across the floor. That was the force with which I hit the ground. Oh wow. That must yeah. must've been awful. Yeah. <laughs> I've embarrassed myself a lot. I'm not going to lie. I've embarrassed myself a lot as a teacher. I've done things like managed to lock myself in the toilets um, and be late oh, to a that's lesson. Happened to me. That's happened to me on purpose. Or, I don't think I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've set off the fire alarm by straightening my hair in the ladies' toilets. The entire school had oh. to line up outside in the rain. That must have been like, quite embarrassing. Um, all students, all staff, non-teaching staff as well, because um, I singed my hair. So I went outside and... I was really embarrassed. I kind of sidled up to the head teacher and I said, um, cause they didn't know what the cause was. They kind of, they went back to like, I don't know if it's the main switchboard or whatever it is. They could identify that it was, it had been set off in the ladies toilets, but they had no idea why there was a fire in the ladies toilets. Um, so I had to go and say to the head teacher, I'm really sorry. I like to operate on honesty. So I'm just going to tell you that, I burnt my hair in the ladies' toilets and I set off the fire alarm. Uh, I got a special mention in briefing that week because I was given thanks for leading on the, um, the fire drill. 
which was due to take place that half term. So they kind of, they took what I had done and used it as a fire drill, but that was embarrassing. So yeah, experienced colleagues and the kindness that they're willing to show trainees cannot be undervalued. Absolutely. Are you, shout out to our staff, our members of staff who are on TLRs and UPS. They don't get the respect they deserve. Many of them <laughs> really have to continue justifying their existence. You know, massive shout out to you guys and massive shout out to Gemma Waite look after me during my NQT. Yeah, she was uh, trying, she was uh, going for promotion after promotion. She's on upper UPS and uh, she just put her arm around me. Honestly, Rosie, she put her arm around me, say to me, Shreb, this is how we do it. You know, don't forget this deadline. It was a small, like, mothering thing, the little details, you know. I'd walk in late some morning, she goes, Shreb, don't worry. I've, you know, I'll, I'll put your computer on for you, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a small thing. Our, I, our staff on UPS, you know, our experienced teachers, you know, deserve a lot of respect. I'm in my fifth year. I don't consider myself as the most experienced. I'm not. But, you know, our experienced teachers deserve so much more respect than, than, than they receive at times. Yeah, I, no, I agree. My mentor, when I was training, um, I don't, I didn't realise how obvious it was that I was struggling. Put it that way. And um, I came in one day and there was a card in my pigeonhole with a chocolate bar and the card said you're doing great keep it up and I read it and I burst into tears um because she had recognized that it was really tough and I was trying really hard and she was a brilliant mentor to me she was always incredibly incredibly kind um to everybody and I'm I really think that I'm lucky that I had her as a mentor she's made me the teacher I am definitely i'm still friends with her today she is a true professional in every aspect of the word and yeah she was an experienced member of staff so i have so much so much to thank uh the teachers who taught me those like those tricks they definitely made me who i am um i've been just really lucky to work with some brilliant people I think yeah myself as well included to be fair I've, I've I've been very fortunate to even like connect with many fantastic educators as well whether it's through social media it's open um, through zoom podcasting etc writing blogs I think it's uh, everyone's got a library of knowledge we can tamper into and we can walk into and, and gain things out and learn things out we're always on a, lear a constant learning journey I remember I observed a teacher once during my NQT he used to have an overhead projector remember the overhead projectors those yeah right on he used to he used to teach from that he's a maths teacher Mr Smith he's retired now bless him and I remember he used to wheel it around the school he used to make a real like wheel really annoying squeak the wheel was like it needed oiling or something and he'd wheel it around the school and that was his teaching and learning toolbox nothing else he didn't have a planner he just had his overhead projector and he taught maths he bossed results he was incredible and I just learned so much because he knew the students. He'd pitch questions at them, like you know, grade eight or grade nine questions, knew them off the top of his head and students would write them down. His marking was fantastic as well, but he refused to do PowerPoint. He refused to do computers. And you know, those mavericks, those people, they still bring a smile to my face. They do exist. There's less and less of them out there, but um, <laughs> there are some incredibly experienced teachers who we can pick little nuggets of information out of and adapt them into our practice. And not only that, just appreciate their brilliance. Yeah, I, know, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm all for the maverick and the underdog. Uh, there's a part of me that really respects like that rebellious streak. And I think that actually quite a lot of teachers have it. 
Um, definitely the ones, maybe, the, maybe there are lots of them in English departments for sure, but um, <laughs> I've definitely worked with lots of teachers who have a wicked sense of humour and who are rule breakers and revolutionaries in one way or another. They're pioneering new things or, you know, using strategies that they know work that are really old school and modernizing them. Um, it's a great job in that respect because it's been, it's been done forever. Mm. And like, there's this like really long lineage of what it means to teach and what it means to learn. Um, yeah. And we're part of that, which is great. No, I definitely agree with you. I definitely, definitely agree with you. Right, I'm just conscious of time, okay? But I've got one yeah. really big question for you. I have to ask everyone, okay? You've been bracing yourself for this question, okay? I know the audience <laughs> as well, okay? What? We're approaching Christmas time, okay? Yeah. What is on your playlist? Oh, Christmas is Michael Bublé for sure. I was listening to E17 this morning just for the sake of it. So <laughs> I'm not really a Christmas like song person like but i thought i'd give them a go today um my usual go-to i mean i grew up on like jennifer lopez and craig david i love craig david the early craig david shout out to carl poope again action hero teacher not the not the current craig david the the weird henchman he's not i mean like the early 2000s is that the right one yeah born to do it and things like that yes yes well we were um we were living in cyprus at the time and my mum came to the UK to see her dad. He hadn't been very well. And this is back when Woolworths existed. Oh, She'd wow, been... the pick a mix. Remember those days? Yeah, those are the days. You know, the kids don't know, kids don't know what they're missing. And yeah, she came back with like CDs from Craig David and Jennifer Lopez. And I remember having Britney Spears and Billy Piper on repeat. Billy Piper's cool. I like, and what was she doing with Lawrence <laughs> Fox? Goodness. Listen, Billy, you're probably listening to this. You're probably not. But even if you are, yeah. What, what, what happened? What's happened to him? I'm sorry. I just need to say that. I'm sorry. Uh, you were saying, Rosie, who else have you got on your playlist? Yeah. So I like, I swing between that. But when I'm, when I'm writing, I like to listen to jazz. Okay. Okay, yeah, that, 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 um... So it's an eclectic mix. Okay, that is an eclectic mix. When I, when I write, <laughs> I listen to, like, Cleopatra and, like, uh, you know, Top Loader and, and, and anything 90s, early 2000s, that's a very nostalgic time. I didn't, I was yeah. quite young at the time during that period, but it's just, life was so much simple. Like, you'd come <laughs> over and you'd watch, like, Rush Hour, you know, yeah. and things like that, and Ready, Steady, Cook. Uh, and you know Keenan and Kel were on TV and things like that those are the yeah. good, those are innocent days I think uh, <laughs> those are really really good times no no Rosie it's been absolutely fantastic having you on anti-small talk Rosie do you have a blog where can our uh, where can our uh, listeners find you blog website Instagram plug as you uh, as you wish uh, you can find me on Twitter at edufeminist um, my presence is really quite low-key if you want to find me on Instagram it's Rosie's Feminist PhD, where I'm really kind of logging, cataloging, archiving the feminist content that I'm going to be looking at in my research. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter's really the place where I'm responding and engaging. Instagram is definitely an archiving project, but by all means, please come and join me, contribute. I'd be more than happy to see you there. 
No, absolutely. Everyone listening, this is a fantastic educator, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and just a very genuine person. We use the word kindness a lot today. When I first had st- struck up a conversation, I thought there's someone we need to have on the podcast and a voice that deserves to be elevated in education in our massive echo chamber. You know, we've got to try try and provide our you know our authentic voice and opportunity to have a seat at the table. But honestly, it's been absolutely incredible, Rosie, and I'm almost certain it's going to happen again at some stage when you're yeah. ready to launch. You know, and anti-small talks hitting like millions and millions of views we can have you back on there absolutely i would really love that no thank you so much for your time though you too thank you thank you